0: digging the rock and roll heaven podcast with ld will the thrill and tj Two.
1: hey guys welcome to rock and roll heaven podcast where we talk about the lives careers and deaths of famous musicians i am your host ld along with me for the ride is will the thrill ahoy hoy And our storyteller today, TJ2, the deuce.
2: Howdy, howdy.
1: So uh, let's just start this off the most depressing way we can. (laughs) More people dying. More more people dying. Yeah. We lost an
2: all-timer over the weekend, that being uh, the great Charlie Pride. No kidding, wow. First of all, what a singer. What an amazing voice. But what a life. Think about the fact that he was one of 11 children born to sharecroppers in rural mississippi that he walked four miles to school both ways as he, when he grew up that he was a negro league all-star baseball player played in a a game that actually pitted negro league all-stars against mlb all-stars it's not just that that he was oh yeah he played a little ball no, no like charlie pride was a really really good baseball player huh. um and I, I don't know if everybody knows this two two country legends that almost made the majors charlie pride And Conway Twitty.
1: I feel like I knew about Conway Twitty. And
2: and I want to say Roy Clark was a really good baseball player, too, and a boxer, oddly. (laughs)
1: So, Actually, yeah, uh, like
2: Christofferson, yeah, Roy, Roy Clark yes.
1: was our very first episode of Rock and Roll Heaven. Roy I
2: did not, I did not re- I, remember that. Roy
1: Clark, I mean, no, no, Roy, it was, um, Roy, Orbison. Roy Orbison. I'm terrible. I don't even Roy know my own children.
2: It's a person named Roy. <laughs> it was a Roy, Rogers. Roy.
1: They had to get Roy Rogers,
2: form. Rob Roy,
1: <laughs> Red Robin, yum, <laughs> yum. Um, but,
2: yeah. but so then, so then after that, he he serves his country. You know, he's an army veteran. Then he goes on to have 30 number one country hits. And, and did this, at, now you gotta think about this. This, this, is a, this is a black man entering about the whitest genre of music that there is at the time. At, yeah. at the time, um, it was not easy to do so. He was kind of a no, uh, No, and years. there were a couple of people who helped him along the, the way. Um, it, and, it, and it was almost echoes of the, the Sammy Davis Jr. episode from a, 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 a few months back. I, I want to. I, I may have the name wrong. I, I think it was Farron Young who kind of took on the, the same role that Frank Sinatra did for Sammy and saying like, hey, you're not going to be a dick to him. You're going to treat him like you treat me, or I'm not going to play at your club anymore. Yeah. Um, I think Loretta Lynn and, and several others, you know, Waylon Jennings, I want to say was a, was a close friend of his that, that shepherded him through, but the the way he handled himself, i i re- there's two quick two quick stories one of them i'm actually going to send ld a link to him and maybe she can put it on the socials because it's such an awesome story but one of them is that he's just breaking out i think kissing angel good morning is climbing up the charts and he's opening for Farron young or somebody at a show in minnesota so i don't know if he, any of y'all have been to minnesota there are a lot of white folks there okay And, and this is a country music concert. So he's probably the only person of color in the building. And he strides out on the stage and he said, there were a lot of people looking at him funny. Well, and Charlie pride says, well, uh, I I can look out at the crowd and see that a lot of y'all are looking at me funny. You're probably not used to seeing a person with a tan quite like mine in Minnesota. (laughs) Wow! and, and just like that, he disarms the crowd. He makes them laugh, and he's got them in the palm of his hand. And then he does an awesome concert, and everybody loves it. That's the first one. The second one is that not very long ago, within the last 10 years or so, he was going to play a concert in Canada. Some lady goes online to buy tickets, and instead of logging on to Ticketmaster, she logs on to like JimmyJacksticketselling.com or some crap ripoff website. Who ends up charging her the low, low price of a thousand dollars for two tickets? Holy yeah. crap! Service for tickets that, for a concert where the tickets are forty or fifty bucks a, and service a pop.
3: fees. Yeah, nine hundred fifty. So dollars. right.
2: So, but she pays it. Her son finds out what has happened and gets very upset. He actually contacts Charlie Pride's office and tells him what happened. Charlie Pride himself gets on an airplane, huh? from Texas, flies to Canada. Whew. Walks into this woman's place of business and hands her a check for $950 to make up the difference. Tells her he's terribly sorry for, for, for what happened and gives her backstage passes. Oh my God. Oh now, if that doesn't tell you what kind of human being he was, I don't know what will.
1: Holy crap.
2: Jeez.
1: Wow. So and I,
2: I I read that story yesterday, LD. I'll send you a link because I, I I it's a it's it's a tremendous story to even read. But um, wow. maybe we can post it on our socials or whatever. But yeah, yeah just RIP to an absolute legend. Kissing Thank Angel, you. Good Morning, Ma- a High on the Mountain of Love, Crystal Chandelier. The 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 the, the hits just go on and on and on. And, and again, I come back to what I said at the very beginning. What a voice! What a freaking singer that man was.
3: And the number of hits puts him in the league with George
2: Strait, doesn't it?
3: Mm -hmm. Wow.
2: Yes, yeah, with Alabama and George Strait and the biggest names in the history of country music, 100%. And there are a lot of people hypothesizing about where he might have contracted COVID because that is what unfortunately killed him. Uh, I'm not going to do that because I don't don't know those things to be true. But anyway, just RIP to an absolute American original and a legend. Mm.
1: Yes, thank you, Charlie. Yeah, and then I, I... I have news of a passing, which I know it's going to sound stupid, but the the podcast community lost a mainstay, uh, I believe, on Thursday. His name was Elvis, and Elvis was a cross-eyed Siamese cat who belonged to Georgia Hardstark, who was the host of one of the biggest podcasts of all time called My Favorite Murder. And Elvis was her, her cat... And he ended every episode. She'd go, Elvis want a cookie? And then this cat would go, ah! And it's so depressing because My Favorite Murder was actually kind of what made me want to start this podcast and for them to yeah. look like, like kind of like their mascot. Didn't he open the live show too? He, he yeah. opened the live show. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it was great because a, a couple years ago, I think it was maybe two or three years ago, My Favorite Murder did a, a live podcast at LA Live here in Los Angeles, and so
2: <laughs> and so didn't you get to go didn't you get to go once?
1: Yes, well, we did. Yeah, that's yeah. the one we went. We that's the one so, we
2: went to. Okay, so we've detailed for everybody. I am the most backwards hillbilly that any listener to this show has ever heard of. I'd never heard that podcast. I've heard this podcast, and that's about all. <laughs> <laughs> I figured out how to listen to the one I'm on. Um, <laughs> I, but but not only do I know who Georgia Hardstark is, I'm actually a fan.
1: Yeah, because she did a cooking show, right?
2: She did a kind of a travel cooking lifestyle show, her and uh, a girl named Allie Ward, uh, Georgia and Allie. It, it was, it only lasted one season, and I, I, it, it made me so sad. That's one of my favorite shows ever. I love that show. And they used to do these, I think they actually started off doing bits on like YouTube, and they got famous for concocting a drink called the McNugget Teeny. Oh. Like a martini with a chicken McNugget in it, or something. That sounds
3: absolutely vile.
2: <laughs> I think I think they they build themselves as the classy ladies back then. But uh, so no, I actually I actually know who she is. I'm very very sorry to hear, uh, very sorry to hear that. I think, if yeah. the choice
3: of that cocktail and the Ricks to see, I'd take the latter.
2: Yeah. Uh, oh boy.
3: <laughs> I still That's, have that banana liqueur yeah. in the cut co- in the cupboard. It's, it's been oh. opened one time. So, uh,
1: but but so so yeah. I want you to tell the story about the shirt, though. Oh, so because I... Because Will got me tickets to this for my birthday, so I had to wait a month because my birthday's on the 29th. It was, it was Halloween night. And it was know. Halloween night, so I had to wait a month. So so, so I knew that
3: uh, LD would want some kind of memorabilia, and I... It was probably midway through the show, I figured I'd beat the crowd, so I head out to the uh, little stands out there, and I'm a few margaritas in at this point. And uh, <laughs> I, I try to find something. I do see material with the, the late Elvis on them and uh, I asked for a few items and I looked at them very closely and I looked at them very closely and eventually one of the vendors says what are you, what are you doing and I said well I have to make sure this cat is cross-eyed or else I know it's not uh, it's not <laughs> sanctioned merchandise <laughs> and sure enough on the shirt it was a shirt right it was a shirt he won't he would not have bought
1: me the shirt yes. if the cat was not cross-eyed but that was
3: a deal breaker I'm like if he's not cross-eyed we're not doing this and sure enough he was and uh thank you Elvis for all the years of entertainment and closing every show of one of the biggest podcasts of all time.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is that I appeared on another podcast. I didn't cheat on my husband or brother. I was on a podcast this week called bend and scoop. So if you guys want to go check that out, the episode's called I'm crazy, but I'm not that crazy, which seems appropriate for me. Mm -hmm. So if you guys want to go check that episode out, I just talk about my love for queen. So not anything shocking but it was a lot of fun and uh the host was really cool it was great we did it over zoom of course because you know social distancing is a thing and it was a lot of fun so thank you so much for the folks over at the bend and scoop podcast for letting me come and hang out so let's get to today's subject this
2: yes so we actually want to thank a listener this is uh, one of our housekeeping episodes we kind of cleaning up some suggestions, requests, recommendations that some listeners have made over time. And you actually said that this one was actually made a really long time ago.
1: Yeah, I believe it was 2018. It was right on the heels of our Karen Carpenter.
2: We're nothing if not prompt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I would like to address one thing really quick. Uh Uh, The person who left the most recent, what do you call it, review on iTunes, I would love to know who you're talking about, because it says, the review says, hang on, I will read it verbatim, because I am confused as to who they're talking about. It says, too much giggling. I love the content, but the one girl is like a giggly high school kid. Two stars. I would love to know which which, which girl, because if you're uh well, starting-
2: Okay, so if they, if they were listening to an older episode, obviously it was hosted by you and another lady right. um now it's you and two two dudes so i don't know if they heard an old one or if they're mis. i don't know how you could mistake my voice for that of a female
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> that would be a really big ugly woman <laughs> <laughs> and you know I, I we we do laugh a lot and have a good time and if you don't like that then um you can kind of bite me huh
1: also, I don't think I giggle. I laugh. I don't really giggle.
2: Yeah, well, no, I don't think we get. I, I mean, are, are, like, are you listening to the right podcast? <laughs> it's like, did you mean to leave a review of this one?
1: Yeah, I, I don't laugh because I have no joy in my life. So obviously, it's not me. Womp, womp. No, no giggling clause in all of our contracts.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. well, I don't think any of us giggle, but you know, we have we have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. And drink. Yeah. So, well, which 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 probably adds a little a little. Uh, Fuel to the Laughing Fire. Just going to be honest with you. Yeah, fair enough. So this one was recommended by listener Elizabeth, and we appreciate it. I'll be just going to be honest with you. This is the first episode I've taken lead on where I'm going in almost completely blind on the subject. All of them I've done previously. These are people that I really like their music, or in the case of somebody like Robert Johnson, I like his music, but the mystique and the mystery surrounding his life is intriguing or in the case of like Dino I mean he's just that he had that rat pack swag the sense of humor the personality the you know just the the the, the aura that, that he presented was just so awesome that I you know I was obviously a big fan this is the first time that I'm I'm going into an episode and I really didn't know a ton about the person to be honest with you I knew he was on a tv show and I knew he was a teen idol and then I knew he was on Broadway and that was about it
3: I would say I didn't even know that much. <laughs> I
2: mean, yeah, uh, be- very little. Um, but but it but it was it turned out to be completely fascinating, and it's and it's cool to go in with like zero preconceived notions of any kind. Just mm, let me go see what I can find out about this guy.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So didn't go in with an angle of any kind. Just just uh, well, let me Google this fellow's name and see what I find. Dry- and I found a lot. So so uh, I guess we'll get started then. All right. In the early 1970s, the songs and TV show featuring Keith Partridge were smash hits. His image appeared on magazine covers, lunchboxes, bubblegum cards, comic books, T-shirts, and almost literally everything else you can possibly imagine. He was known and loved by the world, especially the young female part of the world. Hmm. You know who didn't love Keith Partridge, though, was David Cassidy the actor that portrayed the character. The role gave him essentially everything he had ever wanted, but it also deprived him of what he most needed, that being credibility as both a musician and actor and the respect and love of his father, which would sadly never come. He was a prisoner of his own success and completely isolated despite never being alone and performing in the midst of tens of thousands of fans. This is the story not of Keith Partridge, But of David Cassidy.
3: And I think we could probably do a sort of tragic episode on the Partridge family. If you look at Danny Bonaducci, I mean, I bring that up simply because, TJ, what you said about those feelings that he was sort of, you know, pigeonholed and isolated and kind of synonymous with this character, I think that's what Danny struggled with too for a lot of his life, which led to some very, you know, unfortunate things of addiction and, you know, later issues in his adulthood that. You know, he's
1: he's still trying to shake from what I understand. I think that's what happens to a lot of child stars, especially from that era, was that they're so inextricably linked with that role, they can't shake it. I mean, the series. Look, it, at, look at the look at the, the cast members
2: of the Brady Bunch. Yeah, yeah different strokes would, would be another. But well, but the, there's there's the getting typecast. But then there's also the idea that you're taking very immature, basically children. And you're thrusting them into fame, the spotlight, money. It's just, it, they're, and they're completely ill-equipped to deal with things like that.
3: It's a very volatile formula, yeah. Yeah, yeah
2: I mean, if you would have if you would have given me <laughs> millions of dollars and beautiful women and booze and stuff when I was 15, let me tell you how messed up I'd be. Yeah,
3: I don't think I'd make it to 25.
2: Yeah, I'm probably, probably not doing this podcast now. Right. David Bruce Cassidy was born April 12, 1950, in the Flower Fifth Avenue Hospital in New York. He would essentially be born into show business as his father, Jack Cassidy, was a singer and actor, and his mother, Evelyn Ward, was also an actress. It's not just that his father was a singer and actor. He was an extremely accomplished and lauded performer. He actually won a Tony Award for his work in She Loves Me. He received an Emmy Award nomination for his television performances in He and She and the Andersonville Trial. He guest starred on shows like Gunsmoke, Get Smart, That Girl, Hawaii 5 Bewitched, The Match Game, and three episodes of Columbo. So literally the, the biggest TV shows of that era.
3: I love yeah. Columbo, by the way. I love Colombo.
2: Well, he he was um, had a recurring role apparently for th- I think three episodes. Oh nice. Um, Evelyn did a lot of regional theater, but she was also a regular on Hold It Please, Hello on CBS, wow. and College Bowl on ABC, along with various other credits, including The Man from Uncle, Mike Hammer, and Perry Mason.
1: Wow! Wow! So his parents were pretty deep into.
2: The big right, these are big time celebrities. Um, I mean,
1: this is this is on the level of Debbie Reynolds, like Carrie Fisher being born to Debbie, sure,
2: 100%. And
3: you can kind of see where these with his parents gathering as far as successful parents, thrust for showbiz. I think that's very telling of what might have come next. It's
2: and that and that and that does play into this as, as we go along. With his parents frequently working and touring, young David was actually raised by his maternal grandparents in West Orange, New Jersey. Now, Wilder, you're from you're from Jersey. Do you do you know much of West Orange? Yes, I I,
3: I do avoid it uh, in general. It's not uh, an area that I spent a great deal of time in. It's probably about uh, thirty minutes from where I grew up. Okay. What's there? Orange is nothing. It's, it's industrial.
2: Um, okay. In an episode of VH1's Behind the Music, Cassidy recalled being taken by his mother to a Saturday matinee of one of his father's Broadway shows. He said, quote, I saw him on stage and I was awestruck by his charisma, by his talent, and I guess I soaked up the vibe in the room and I said, I can do that. Oh, a young David had his world rocked when he found out from neighborhood children that his parents were not only divorced from and had been for two years, but that his father had actually remarried a woman named Shirley Jones. Now, oh. I want you to think about, I want you to really get your head around what I just said. He found out from like other kids in his neighborhood that his parents were divorced and had been for two years. He had no idea. Well,
1: what why is no Shirley, clue. Jones, Shirley Jones? That's the mom in the Partridge family, isn't it?
2: Uh-huh. Yes, that was his real-life stepmother.
1: Wow. wow. And now, ooh, mind blown. Oh, yes. did not know that.
2: David Cassidy recalled that initially he did not want to like Shirley Jones because of how hard he took the breakup of of his parents. You know, his the, the that, that marriage falling to pieces just, just absolutely crushed him. But he said, however, that she was such a nice human being that she was so genuinely warm and giving and kind that he could not help but be taken by her. She would, of course, have uh, much more of a role in his life a little bit later on than just being his stepmom. It actually seems as though he had a better relationship with her, really, as time went along than he did with his own father. In a somewhat infamous Rolling Stone interview from 1972, Um, which we'll, we'll lean on heavily over the course of this episode. He said, quote, I had a lot of rejection from my father when I was young. I never saw him after he divorced me and my mother, which is a very interesting way to phrase that.
3: Yeah.
2: I, I wouldn't hear from him for a year. I don't feel any hostility towards him. I'm a friend of his now, but a little boy shouldn't have been shunned like that. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack in that statement. Like a lot. Yeah. The fact that he's he he makes reference to his father divorcing he and his mother and that at twenty-one ish years old he's he's basically saying, like, Yes, you know, Jack and I are friends now. Jeez. Not I have a great relationship with my dad. Jack and I are friends. And he calls him Jack, too. Yeah. That that's a really there, there's a lot going on there. I mean, if you just read that quote, just as words on paper, it may not jump out at you. If you really think about what he's saying there, there's there's a there's some stuff going on. I would say there could have been a lot of things that made Jack distant. It could have been that that was just in his nature. It could have been that he was diagnosed as being bipolar. Mm. David Cassidy wrote a tell-all book in 1994, and he dealt with this pretty pretty much head on, but. In that autobiography, Come On, Get Happy, David said that uh, as time went along, his father's behavior got more and more erratic. On top of being bipolar, David said his dad was also an alcoholic. In 1974, neighbors were apparently aghast to see him standing completely naked in his front yard one afternoon watering the lawn, just for example. (laughs) Shirley Jones described coming home to find him sitting naked in a corner reading a book. She told him that they had to get ready to go to a show to which he supposedly replied, I know now that I am Christ. Hello. Okay. Yeah, right. Oh my. So uh, obvious, you know, he's dealing with issues of bipolar disorder and then probably exacerbating that by drinking too much. A couple of documentaries paint a picture of David as being sort of rebellious, right? Like he was, he wanted to, he was rebelling against his father. He said, quote, I did a lot of things that I knew would piss him off. But it was almost as though he was rebelling against the idea of his father. Because at the time that he's talking about doing things that he knew would piss his dad off, they were not, they had no involvement with one another.
3: Yeah, I was gonna say, it's interesting because there is a level of detachment
2: there. Right.
3: He even refers to him as Jack later in life. He didn't know his parents were
2: divorced. I mean. Right. Wow. So he's about he's about 16 years old. And he's, as you're about to see doing some stuff that 16 year olds did in the 60s. But it's it, it's almost like he was rebelling against the idea of his father because his dad wasn't there to see what he was doing. They they would go up to a year without speaking to one another at this point. So it's it's all it's almost the idea of Jack Cassidy that he he decided he was going to rebel against.
1: Now, was he living with Jack at the time or was he living with his mom?
2: No, he wasn't. And we're, we're, ju- we're just about to get there. Okay. Um, see, this, as, as I just said, he wasn't involved in David's life for very long stretches. Um, at, at some point after the divorce, David's mother took him 3,000 miles away to California to live.
1: Huh. Okay.
2: So, so there's an entire country between David Cassidy and his father at this point. He had a fairly normal childhood um, when he was a, a, a little child. He played little league baseball and things like that. At 14, though, he told Rolling Stone that he became a bicycle thief and he ran a de facto chop shop out of his garage. <laughs> he said, quote, I'd be walking home from school and I'd see a bike sitting there and I'd rip it off and drive it home. I'd paint it or do something to it. I ended up, having, uh, I ended up returning a lot of them but I'm sure that I must have caused those people a lot of grief.
1: Aww.
2: Um, It was also around this time that he began uh, seeing a psychiatrist for the first time, he noted. He's 16 at this point? I think this is about, he was about 14 or 15 at this point okay. when he starts seeing a, a psychiatrist for the first time. He said he also did, quote, a lot of effing around, experimenting. Not smack, but grass and speed and psychedelics. To be fair, it wasn't. And, right, to be fair, he, he's in he's in California in the late 1960s so right. <laughs> so there It's he not is. like this is it's not like this is exactly uncommon.
3: Yeah, homework uh, home not like people home home said, the doors. <laughs>
2: it's not like people pointed and said David Cassidy does he does dope. He does the ganja. Yeah. He takes he takes the dope. <laughs> the dope. As our as our as our grandmother used to say. LD. Yes. Or the gambling. There there was, there was no differentiation between kinds of drugs. It was all just the dope. the dope
3: everything was the dope
2: <laughs> everything was the dope yeah he had met a friend by this time named sam hyman who would basically be a friend for his entire life uh but the two of them would you know, as i said remain close until cassidy's passing the two attended university high school in hollywood or at least they were supposed to <laughs> david david was expelled after cutting are you ready for this 102 classes in a single semester. Wow. Not in the year, in the semester, in a semester he cut 102 classes. That takes effort. That is, I'm impressed. That they mean,
1: were does that mean he showed up to school and then left the <clears> classes, right?
2: That's usually what cutting a single class is as opposed to just skipping. Yeah. School
3: Well, maybe he went to give the illusion he was going and then would just go, you know, do...
2: And then just bail. That's entirely possible. They were, per Sam's telling, part of the same social club. He said, quote, those clubs were either football clubs or fighting clubs. We were both wimps, so we belonged to the fighting club for security. We would have been killed playing football. Yeah. Hyman said he and Cassidy started, quote, tripping with drugs at the end of ninth grade. He said Cassidy was never really sold on LSD so much and didn't have many good trips. Quote, he was more into hash. He always had more hash than anyone else I knew. (laughs) I had some bad trips, David said. I had some bad trips, David said. Tripping for kicks in the worst, most paranoid places. But I was taking drugs seriously. I didn't want to be a junkie. A few of my friends died. Committed suicide, actually. Oh wow! So he, while he's partying and he is experimenting with drugs, he was always very conscious of the fact that he didn't want to turn into a junkie because he had people who had gone down that path and had lost their life as a result of it. So to him, it was kind of a fun thing, experimental thing, but he actually took like care to not get hooked on stuff and and to not and and to not make it necessarily an everyday occurrence. But you know, he 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 was. He was 16, and he was in California, and he did drugs. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're breaking any news here. Cassidy and Hyman hung around Haight Ashbury hey, in
1: 1967. That's, that's a way to get clean.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, and they took full advantage of the sex and drugs and rock and roll that the area was famous for. In one of the documentaries I watched, Cassidy actually recounted how they would go into clubs and stuff. And again, they're they're 16, 17 years old. Um, so maybe you shouldn't even have been where they were necessarily, but I don't guess anybody was checking IDs at that point. i
3: feeling they weren't. I don't
2: think it was a compliment. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> he said that they would go into clubs where almost everybody was naked, <laughs> everybody smoking weed, there's people <laughs> dancing naked, smoking big fat doobs like on tabletops and stuff, and just having a, just having a lovely time. <laughs> Do people still smoke fat doobers and dance naked on tabletops in California? I've never been
1: uh well are, mean, everything's closed so there's th- okay so smoking the fat dubs, uh probably because it's legal here
2: right depends so. on how fat because it's
1: done by weight if it's too big it might be illegal yeah oh really yeah yeah like the, a joint is fine this shows you how yeah. much uh i know about the dubs.
2: Uh, so you could do it you could have a you could do a joint but perhaps not a blunt
1: yeah you, you can't have a cheech and chong style uh
2: okay you can't smoke a paper towel roll <laughs>
1: right. right yeah <laughs> Uh, And then as far as dancing on tables, uh, we don't know because we haven't been anywhere in like eight months. I gotcha.
2: David, as I said, enjoyed all three of the things the area was famous for, that being sex and drugs and rock and roll. In a quote lost interview uh, from 1989 that Yahoo published after his death, he talked about the music that he was listening to back in that era. He said radio stations did not focus on one particular genre at the time. So, like right now, if if you want to listen to country, you listen to this station. If you want to listen to,
1: you know, we play
2: anything, you, you listen to this station. If you want to listen to pop music, you, you know, now it's very, everything is very segmented now. Right. Back then, a lot of radio stations didn't do that. So he said that he it was not uncommon for him to listen to a station that would play Tony Bennett and then play the Beatles and then play Petula Clark and then play the Rolling Stones and then play Wilson Pickett.
1: And then play Manfred Mann's Earth Band
2: because, because that, there it is there it is ladies and gentlemen our federally mandated hey. earth
1: band reference of
2: the podcast
1: point of order they did not
3: come around until 1971 so Sorry. <laughs> <Not quite yet. laughs>
2: and as for concerts l- l- listen to this and, and you have to think now if you're in the Haight-Ashbury area and California in general at this point there's a lot of great music available for you to go see live he said quote I got to see Marvin Gaye I got to see B.B. King I got to see Eric Clapton. I got to see Jimi Hendrix five times. I got to see the Velvet Underground. I got to see the Doors. I saw like Buffalo Springfield at my high school. They played an assembly.
4: Uh I got
2: to see the Doors at the Whiskey. I saw them in 68. I saw Jimi Hendrix open for the Mamas and the Papas. So those of you who know much about the music that David Cassidy will produce in the not too distant future from here okay so the list that i just gave might sound out of place (laughs) to people who are familiar with the kind of music that david cassidy would produce in the not too distant future from where we're talking about because he was a purveyor of what was seen as this sort of bubblegum pop and here he is going to see hendrix five times which I'm super jealous Absolutely. of.
1: Also, I think um, the who rivals him for that was actually Freddie Mercury. Did see Jimmy? Freddie, I think, saw Jimmy five times.
2: Wow. But so. he saw Hendrix open for the mamas and the papas. He Fred went and saw the Reed. doors at the whiskey. I mean, yeah. he went and saw Buffalo Springfield played at his school i guess he showed, i guess he showed up that day yeah
3: <laughs> well look if, if i knew they were going to be there i'd show up too yeah i
2: would have shown up, i would have 100 percent shown up too so it but this is the start of what becomes part of the rub for him this is what he loves the, the list that i just read you this is the kind of music that he really loved and was inspired by and wanted to play and that's not what he ever got to play and that that becomes a problem as we go forward
1: We will have to take a short break right here, guys. And we will be right back after a word from our sponsors.
2: And we are back. All right. Well, let's uh, get back into the life and times of David Cassidy. I will say that the party stopped, unfortunately, for David, when he ended up stuck in his house for three months with an especially nasty case of mono. Oh. He said that cut off from his active social life for a while, he realized that he wanted to do something with his life. So he actually went back to school. I think he had dropped out briefly. He said that he didn't want to allow himself to get in any ruts. So after graduation, he gave himself exactly two weeks to party and have a good time. And then he headed to New York. He got a job when he got there. It was his first job working part-time in the mail room of a textile firm in New York's West Side Garment District. He took a couple of acting lessons while he was there for the first time, and then he scored a small part in a Broadway play called "Fig Leaves Are Falling." Now, that may not be the most familiar-sounding production, even to a complete theater nerd like LD. Hmm. Have you ever heard of "Fig Leaves Are Falling"?
1: I don't know, but it sounds kind of naughty, like uh, almost kind of like hair.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: more naked people. Yeah. It next- sounds
2: like it sounds it sounds like there are people not wearing clothes. I, I don't yeah. I don't know a whole lot about it, but. There's not a whole lot to know because it ran for four performances and then it was canceled.
1: Holy cow. Huh. I think Spider-Man turned off the dark head more.
2: Yeah, this was oh it God. it lasted four performances before it got yanked.
3: Jeez. It was like the Chevy Chase show on Broadway shows
2: ve- ve- very much so. <laughs> and and boy, what a what a horrendous wreck of a show <laughs> so that was. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Oh. Um, I don't folks. Ruth Ahrens would end up serving as David's manager. She'd known him since he was eight years old. Jack Cassidy, who had kind of become a part of David's life again in some way, especially once he was, you know, David was back living in New York, informed Ahrens that David did not want to go to college. He wanted to go into the entertainment business and to please keep an eye on him, you know, for him. Ahrens said that she told David, quote, look, you've got two ways to go. You can stay here in New York for seven years and learn to act, or you can come back to Los Angeles and be a star. David said, quote, I was out to earn the bucks. I wanted to be a working actor. He said his goal was not really to be a star per se, but that would happen soon enough. He signed with Universal Studios and he was featured in a lot of shows in, in strangely dramatic roles. He was in Ironside. He was in Marcus Welby, MD. He had a guest starring role in uh, Adam 12. He was in Bonanza, and sure. he was in a, a show called Medical Center. And again, th- this is so not what you, if all you know of him is what he did on The Partridge Family, it would probably surprise you how serious most of these roles were. Um, He actually got a good bit of acclaim, particularly for a performance he did in the show Medical Center. It's odd then, again, that um, he was about to really make his name in a sitcom. He received a script for The Partridge Family, I think in 1969. He said, quote, when I first read the script, I thought it was terrible. (laughs) I was thinking about saying these dumb lines like, gee, mom. Can I borrow the keys to the car? I just couldn't. I just couldn't bring myself to do it after doing all these heavy things that I'd done. So he called Aaron's and he basically said, "You have got to be kidding me with this."
4: <laughs>
2: she told him to read it over again, think about it, and to call her back. He did, and he ended up telling her that he guessed it wasn't so bad. "Quote only because I'd gotten used to it." So he couldn't have known what was about to happen. This is, a, a, you know, a, a guy who, again, he didn't want to be a star necessarily. He he said in, in multiple interviews that I read from the time, he just wanted to be a working actor. He wanted to be able to pay his bills. He wanted to be able to pay his rent and have, have a little money left over. He just, he just wanted to work pretty much. And, but, it, but also he had done a couple of, of roles that had really gotten some acclaim and really gotten him attention for being an actor, not just for being a good looking guy who walks out and says, you know, stupid stuff, <laughs> To a laugh track, and then lip syncs to a song or whatever. He was he was actually seen as like, oh wow this you know look at the the acting chops on this guy is, is is kind of what he was getting at the time. The Partridge Family, for those who aren't familiar, was loosely based on the life of the real life family band, the Cow Sills. The now Sills the Cow Now, huh. if you depending on what story you're reading, and because some stuff I found was a little bit conflicting. It sounded like maybe the original plan was that the cow seals themselves were going to be somehow involved in the show, but that one, there was one thing that wasn't negotiable. That was that Shirley Jones was going to be in the show and she was going to be the mother and the cow seals maybe balked at it or whatever, but as it ended up, they were not involved in the, in the program, uh, in the on-air product in any way. Um, David went to read for the, for, uh, the part of Keith Partridge. And when he did so, he walked into a room to find that he would be reading with Shirley Jones, his (laughs) stepmom. Wow. So he he went there having no idea that that she was going to be any part of the program.
3: Wow. Wow.
2: At all. She had actually already been selected to fill the role of the mother on the show. What are you doing here? She asked him. He informed her that he guessed he was there to read for the part of her son. (laughs) He did. The original idea was that Shirley Jones would sing on the show and that everybody else would just lip sync and pretend to play instruments to songs done by studio musicians. Once David got the part of Keith Partridge, however, and producers realized that he actually could sing and he could play the guitar, they decided to incorporate both, which would give the proceedings more authenticity, they felt. Because the the plan was basically... Uh, so Shirley Jones had, was, was an award-winning was had won awards for her acting she was she was a really good singer and their plan was that pretty much the only cast members voice you were going to hear in songs was going to be hers but then once they picked david and realized like oh hey this kid actually has a pretty good voice he can play guitar pretty well too they just felt like you know what it's going to make things seem a little more real to the audience if we actually you can actually hear this this kid singing the more people who were actually really contributing something musically, they actually thought that would add something to the show. Uh, Most people don't realize this, but the Partridge family's first songs were released before the show was even on the air yet. Really? Sort of a
3: marketing kind of scam?
2: (laughs) Right. That's 100% yes. They used music kind of as a way to promote the show a little bit.
4: The
3: clever. Partridge
2: family debuted on abc september 25 1970, but their first single was released on august 22nd 1970. Oh wow. The song was listed as being performed by quote the Partridge family, and there was a shot of the entire show's cast on the single sleeve. However, aside from cassidy, on lead vocals, and Shirley Jones contributing some background vocals, the song was played and sung entirely by veteran studio musicians. The Rolling Stone article that I've already referenced a couple of times also provided a glimpse into the machine that created teen idols. So the attention and adoration Cassidy would receive from his mostly female fans is legendary. So you might think that the media blitz of magazine covers was an attempt to cash in on a craze that had already started. In fact, it was the other way around. The magazine covers and fluffy stories were used as a tool to prime the publicity pump, so to speak.
4: Wow.
2: The Rolling Stone article includes a lengthy interview with a woman named, uh, I believe it was Gloria Stabers. She was the editor of 16 Magazine at the time. She said, quote, it was too... Two and a half years ago, when I first met David. Now, this interview took place in 1972. I'd heard of him before that. It was earlier in 1970, six months before Screen Gems showed the pilot for the Partridge family. It was the kids and their letters that first brought him to my attention. He had done a bit on medical center as a hemophiliac. I remember what it was because all of their letters had it spelled wrong. <laughs>
4: um,
2: at his peak, Stavers said that Cassidy received 3,000 fan letters a day
1: oh. ju-
2: just through her magazine.
1: Oh, God.
2: That and she actually a- made it a point to sit and read all of them. That
1: whoa, this was whoa, sort whoa, of a- whoa. She read 3,000 letters a day?
2: She claims to have read every letter that came through there. Wow. So at a certain point, you have to figure that's almost all she did, was just sit there and read letters.
3: Now, now it's interesting. You pointed out that this was, this was quote, a machine. It was almost like they realized we had this young marketable kid and totally pivoted on their strategy, you know?
2: That is 100% that you're dead on. That's yeah. it, 100% what happened.
3: I just have to use the line, I mean, it's just like diversion here of a uh, great playwright, Neil Simon, his play "Laughter on the 23rd Floor, uh, when he's talking about them writing the show, which was the equivalent of the Sid Caesar show at the time. He says a line that I'll never forget, and I think it's very appropriate here. He said, if television produced sausages, we'd be pigs instead of writers. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this well, is a very similar case where they had this kid that could basically prop up and like you said, create a
2: buzz that created the buzz. Now that, that that that's that's exactly what happened.
1: Can I can I speak to this from a female perspective?
2: Yeah, pl- please do.
1: Because, you know, growing up, we are fed through, you know, there was Teen Bop magazine, Tiger Beat. Yep. we had all these and, and I ate them up. And this was like when Jonathan Taylor Thomas was king and, oh gosh, Andrew Keegan and guys like that, New Kids on the Block, absolutely. I think that's really kind of like the gateway drug for (laughs) these teenage magazines, but they would literally just have magazines where it was just pictures of boys, you know, Mm -hmm. boy idols, with maybe like an article about the show they're on. But really it was just like, here's their face. Don't you love them? And I think that's kind of what it was, was this was this was the nexus of that. They saw that they had a marketable face and then they slapped it on everything, kind of like the Jurassic Park logo and kids ate it up because really yep. they didn't have that before.
3: And, and based on the shows you're telling me, TJ, he would not have been known in the teen community. I don't think these teenage girls are watching medical Center. <laughs>
2: You know? not necessarily, but yeah. apparent apparently, there were some that did notice him there because she said that's where she first started to get letters about him was the bit he did on Medical Center. I'm sure you can probably find it on youtube i have I have seen a clip of it and, and he's very good in it, but he's he's David Cassidy, right. you know he's he's you know, you know impossibly good looking sixteen seventeen year old kid that you know I'm sure girls didn't hate looking at. So she said that's actually where she first started to to get a little buzz from from girls about him
1: but it's absolutely reciprocated they know what they have they give it to the girls the girls consume it and they get more like it's yeah. just, right they, it's a cycle
2: and that's so so this woman had a lengthy quote master questionnaire that she had cassidy fill out and she used that uh, questionnaire for story material for months and months and months Hmm. Um, and the, and one story, the story I read, she actually expressed a bit of resentment that other magazines, including that were centered entirely around either Cassidy or the Partridge family had, had basically stolen her technique. So this is, and and there was, I've read a couple of them, but it's like, they wanted names of pets and they wanted, you know, what do you like doing in your free time? But it's a big, long list of questions. And she mined that to write stories about him. For, you know, the better part of a year or so, it was a, it was, it was a, a, a just an absolute goldmine of material in her opinion.
1: I mean, that was smart. Good on her. Yeah. Sure. hundred uh,
2: percent. Definitely. There was a, a photographer that provided photos for a lot of these magazines who discussed his technique for getting the shots he needed. So essentially you needed pictures of your subject in different colored shirts. Nothing else mattered. He could be wearing the same pants, same hair, same shoes, all that stuff. Everything could be identical. They just needed him wearing, they, literally, literally, they just needed him wearing different colored shirts. Huh. That's it. Um, they had to be different colors. So if you could get him to pose in four or five different shirts, you had a couple of months worth of cover pictures.
1: Oh, yeah. You can recycle a picture of him in a yellow shirt like twice before anybody notices.
2: Right, but but it's like okay, so I've got uh, a red one, a blue one, a green one, an orange one, and a purple one. And the, and they would this this photographer would basically just just go to David Cassidy and's like, hey, I need pictures of you in all five of these shirts. And and Cassidy would basically just sit there and change shirts, and the guy would take pictures of him, mm. and that's it. And the guy's like, okay, I got five months worth of worth of magazine covers now. Jeez. Um, now, if he balked at wearing something, or if he wasn't in the mood in general to be dealing with stuff like this the photographer would slide him some money or give him a gift. Cassidy was once wooed with a top-of-the-line Nikon camera.
1: Oh, that is a lot of money for that. Yep,
2: he would subsequently receive new lenses, tripods, and other accessories for his, his little toy. At a certain point, Cassidy actually came to loathe the magazines, thinking that they made him look stupid or unserious. Things like his dog in a bubble bath might have just seemed oh so adorable to 14 year old girls but it increasingly just grated on him
1: I mean I get that yeah
2: yeah yeah he felt like the magazines were selling a fake image that wasn't really him which of course it wasn't at one point he pronounced that he wanted the magazines to stop or to just go away but he was told that the cycle of magazine covers and cheesy stories would only stop when, quote, he was over. Ah. A plea to at least not put his picture on the covers was laughed off since his image is what was making the thing sell to start with. Even when he felt that they they crossed a line and intruded on his life a little bit by digging up some pictures of him as a child to publish, he played along because he realized that as distasteful as he found the things at point, uh, he found them at, at points, they were feeding his fame and his popularity.
4: Sure.
2: But I was just kind of fascinated by, by the, the the inner workings of that. That like you would have this assumption that the show came on and it was a big hit. And well, you know, you know, girls love this show because of David Cassidy. Let's put him on our, our magazine covers and make money because he's already popular. And it was that's a hundred percent not how it happened. Yeah. They, those 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 magazine covers Started before the Partridge family debuted on television, they were priming the pump already.
3: Really amazing. Yeah,
1: I yeah. mean, I feel like that's okay. I know this sounds great but I guess the the real world equivalent of that now would probably be like the end credit sequences of a Marvel film, like for the next film, for the next film, like that kind of, but in human form, where they're like, right, we have this, the you know, you're going to want to watch the next Marvel film because. Look who might be in it. I would say even a,
3: another comparison would be the Blair Witch Project and their marketing. Blair Witch, You know, they yes. launched all this stuff online months before the film debuted. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. If,
2: you know what? If you think about it, that is what Garth Brooks intended to do with the Chris Gaines, Chris Gaines. thing. Gaines,
1: yes. Oh, my God, Chris Gaines.
2: That, yeah. he, that he was going to put out this album. Which he did. About, that, that was songs by a fictional character who was going to be in a movie that was called The Lamb.
1: I have. I do not remember.
2: I think it was. He was going to do a movie about a, a pop rock singer called. It was going to be called The Lamb, but the name of the character was going to be Chris Gaines. So he actually put out quote Chris Gaines's greatest hits, thinking like I'm priming the pump for this movie that I'm working on. So when the movie never happened, that it just made him look kind of dumb because it's like, well, why are you being Chris Gaines? Yeah, what is this all <laughs> Who is, yeah. What is this? People were confused. <laughs> yeah. So but it was a, a very similar thing. The show, as mentioned already, debuted on September twenty-fifth, nineteen seventy. It was a hit right out of the box, winning its time slot, which was Fridays at eight thirty PM, if you were wondering. Ooh,
3: the death slot. Uh,
2: it finished the season with a nineteen point eight rating and an audience of nearly twelve million people. As the show is in the midst of the early part of the first season. The fictional band at the center of things had an actual real hit climbing the charts with the song, I Think I Love You.
1: Okay, are we, By
2: November, to
1: song? Are we going to listen to the song?
2: We are going to listen to that song For in just sure. a minute.
1: Yes!
2: By November, the song hit number one. It enjoyed uh, a multi-week run atop the U.S. charts and was also a number one hit in Australia and Canada and went top 10 in four other countries. The single for that song, this is, uh, this, uh, this is almost obscene sounding. It sold 5 million copies, putting it 500,000 units of sales ahead of another hit from that year you might recognize called Let It Be. Oh! Uh-huh. No! I, I think I love you, sold half a million more copies than Let It Be by the freaking Beatles. That's just not by a nose. It's half a million YouTube. Half a million. Hey, but you think, wow, let it be sold four and a half million copies. Yeah. Well, the Partridge family sold five million. <laughs> Eat it, Paul.
4: <laughs> Holy God.
2: crap. Take that, sir, Paul. Yeah. Okay. So let's have, now that we've been talking for like two hours. <laughs> 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 Stop. Hey, Will, was that a giggle? Uh,
3: did I giggle? I
2: don't know. Sorry. Yeah, I'm going to need you to put I have, that Yeah, I got to
3: put a, a coin in the giggle jar, I guess. Um,
2: so, more of a with default, that, really. let's have our first music break of the episode. LD has been absolutely itching to hear music in general, this one especially. This is the Partridge Family with I Think I Love You.
4: In the middle of a good dream, like all at once, I wake up from something that keeps knocking at my brain. Before I go insane, I hold my pillow to my head and spring up in my bed, screaming out the words I dread. I I I think I love you. This morning, I woke up with this feeling I didn't know how to deal with. And so I just decided to myself I'd hide it to myself And never talk about it And did not go and shout it when you walked into the room say that i've never felt this way i don't know what i'm up against i don't know what it's all about i got so much to think about Hey, I think I love you So what am I so afraid of? I'm afraid that I'm not sure of A love there is no cure for I think I love you Isn't that what life is made of? So it worries me to say I never felt this way Believe me, you really don't have to worry I only want to make you happy and if you say, hey, go away, I will. But I think better still, I'd better stay around and love you. Do you think I have a case? Let me ask you to your face.
2: you know what yeah screw anybody don't like that it is still played today frequently you know know what no look look that's that's not necessarily the kind of music that i love or like listening to that's an undeniably catchy little song how can you not you you have to admit that that is a well crafted little pop song
3: and and with it they they boat raced the beatles i mean yes they
2: right
1: And not just that, but but I will tell you, guys. George
2: George and Paul were riding in their wake tasting salt (laughs) water and shrimp. Okay. And Ringo was just happy to be there. (laughs) I'm just just driving the boat, mate.
1: So that actually is, okay, two things. That's actually the first TikTok I ever did. I've only done three TikToks, but I've got one. Ringo
2: driving a boat? That's weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, would, I want to see that uh
1: and then the other it actually appeared in a really crappy sequel uh jerry o'connell does it as a kind of homage to top gun in scream 2 yes and so that was kind of uh, it's not a great scene it's not a great it's no it's not a great sequel it's the not scene a great is, movie the scene is fine but timothy Ugh. oliphant makes it uh all the worse for being like Oh yeah, this is like Top Gun, and you're like, dude, sit down, shut up. He's doing the Partridge Family. This is not like Top Gun.
2: We don't do these uh, these uh, very often anymore. But how would you like a fun fact? Fun fact? Love fun facts. Give it to me. Hit me. And this is actually I'm actually going to post this as a trivia question. At the time, I think I love you was the third song ever by a fake or non-existent band to top the U.S. charts. Does anybody know what the first two were?
3: Was it the Archies?
2: that's one sugar sugar yeah. sugar
1: sugar, sugar by the archies very good <laughs> you only know that yes. song because of me i pay attention
2: <laughs> sugar sugar by the archies was in fact the first one of the first
1: but the monkeys were not no no nope? oh geez okay so was the, the Archie... zombies the zombies were a real band were they though
2: yeah, there were like weird fake versions of them that toured and yeah. stuff or something.
1: Weird versions of them, but they were a real band.
2: yeah, the zombies were a real band. Well no uh, but they the, were- the other ones really the other one's oh, you may not guess. Um the, bra- the, the, first, the the other was Alvin and the Chipmunks.
1: Oh wow. Those were real chipmunks you should Which was up.
2: actually uh was Ross Bagdasarian, I think was his name. Was it Christmas time? It was I, I think it was the 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 the, the uh, chipmunks Christmas song, yeah.
1: Okay,
2: so th- those those were the first two. I, I, I'm sure there have been more recently. The last one I remember was "How Do You Talk to an Angel?" by The Heights. Yeah. Oh my
1: God, I love that do you
3: turn, song. My first year or
2: two of being a disc jockey in high school.
1: Uh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I- Cassidy Mania had begun, and it was spreading like wildfire. He was mobbed almost everywhere he went. He would have to be snuck in and out of appearances. Young female fans would scale the the recording lot fences for a chance to snap pictures or just to catch a fleeting glimpse of their new heartthrob. Cassidy was 20 years old, despite barely even looking old enough to portray the 16-year-old character Keith Partridge. Wow. Despite looking very young, he enjoyed some very adult pursuits, including the company of ladies. And this is something that the fan magazines definitely did not cover or present because it did not comport with the bubblegum, teeny bopper, teen heartthrob image. Women were a near fixture in his dressing rooms and trailers. Danny Bonaducci, who starred on the show alongside Cassidy, Bonadouche. And, Bonadouche. and remained friends with David once the show ended. Told behind the music that his first sexual experience was, in fact, on the set of The Partridge Family with a David Cassidy reject.
3: Whoa, 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 whoa! Oh. He was how old then?
2: Well, okay, now okay, okay. Do we all remember Behind the Music? Oh, yes, loved it. Yeah, okay. Loved behind. I loved, loved, by it. By, I loved by, I've seen all. I've seen every episode they ever did. I think. So you know that they would, you rarely heard an interviewer conversing with any stars that they were talking to. You had the guy who was the voice of Behind the Music, and then you would have, they, they, he would set up a clip, and then you would have Danny Bonaduce speaking, or David <laughs> Cassidy speaking. The, the yes. subject in kind of a neutrally lit room. Right, right, okay, but you never heard the question that was asked of whoever the star was that was on camera at the time. The only, as I went back and watched the David Cassidy episode, the only exception I can recall from the entire run of that show was when Danny, Danny Bonaducci said that. At which point, whoever was interviewing him said, Wait, wait what? Really? Because <laughs> Danny said, Yes. Be, I mean. So, so Bonaducci relayed that there was uh, a woman who, uh, rather amorous and looking for David, uh, he either wasn't interested or she wasn't able to get access to him or whatever. But she's just losing her mind. David, David, David. And she isn't able to enjoy the company of Mr. Cassidy. Henceforth, so, I'm going so to
3: call he, anything that is now my second pick a Bonaduce. <laughs> and you and our listeners are going to be the, the only ones in on this joke.
2: We'll, <laughs> ever, but we'll ever get it. for In any instance, forever. Second choice is Hence a Bonaduce.
3: Henceforth, as decreed, <laughs> all opposed. Motion carried, okay. Motion carries. So. Sorry, I want to interject one more thing. To the powers yeah. that be, please bring back behind the music. I don't know what that will take, but bring it back. That is all.
2: There's such a, there's such a wealth of, of people to, to work with now.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, you know, so they haven't been be, covered. It would be even interesting if they did tack-ons to the ones they already did, because if you go back and you watch the one on Lisa Left Eye Lopez or uh, TLC, it – it doesn't even have her death in it. They were still together, and she was still alive yeah. when they did, and they never updated it.
2: Yeah. Now there was a documentary on left out that where it goes literally up to the second that she dies because there was a camera running in the car. Oh the yeah, car I thought
1: it, it's the last days of last days of Lisa Lisa. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
2: But um. But anyway, so that's more that's more happy pursuits. So this is the only time in the history of the series that I can recall that the person interviewing the subject actually says what. Are you serious? <laughs> and Bonaducci said, Yep. He then relays that there's this woman distraught that she was not able to make the acquaintance of Mr. Cassidy. <laughs> and he says, Here I am, fat, gangly, stupid. <laughs> I walk up to her and say, Hi, I'm Danny. <laughs> and that it worked. <laughs> and that she made a man of him right then and there.
3: Wow! Amazing. How can you
2: be fat and gangly? Don't those that well, that's a that's a but that uh, that's a good question. But that's how he described himself. So, thirteen-year-old Danny Bonaducci said that he lost his virginity to a woman he figures was twenty-three years old,
1: and he was what nine 13. at the time.
2: Was <laughs> he was thirteen. Wow. He was thirteen. She was twenty-three. So technically, it was statutory right Yes. <laughs> just, just not not to be Captain down, but it was technically illegal. Um and he says he said that quote, I gave her the best thirty seconds of her life.
4: <laughs> oh,
1: oh, what a
2: yeah. So so David so David apparently had a pretty big coal pile. Huh. You know any of you who've ever picked any of you who've ever picked apples or peaches will understand what that means. And yeah. everybody else won't. <laughs> um now uh, with the Partridge family, both uh, shit. I'm sorry. Let me look um, I can't read my writing. Oh. You guys keep
1: going. I'll be back.
2: Okay. I've 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 got it, but I can wait till she comes back. It's fine. Keep go, go, yes. Keep
1: going. Ca- keep going.
2: Calling guys. second calling second takes a Bonaducci is, is a master stroke and that's what I'm doing for, for the rest of my life.
3: Yes, from that's fourth. Mm-hmm. I encourage all this. <laughs>
2: Now and forever, yes. do overs or second takes are in fact bonaducies. Or, or, or it can just be bonaduc? You can go with uh-huh. that. Or it's, a, it's it, yep, yep, uh, the old bonaduc. If you just don't have time to get out that
3: last solo. Seriously.
2: Yeah. And since she's gonna have to edit this part out anyway, will. Can you uh, imagine? Can you imagine when you were thirteen having sex with a twenty-three-year-old woman?
3: No. No. Oh it, yeah. I, I, I. Wow. I. Yeah.
2: <laughs> A, 30 seconds would have been a, a pursuit I probably could not have reached. you. Yeah, that, that would have been something, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is, like, how creepy that is. I mean, you got to wonder, did she know, or was, I mean. I, I think he, okay, his exact quote. Yeah. And perhaps, perhaps, Lindley, when you get back and are editing this, leave this in. His quote on top of, I gave her the best 30 seconds of her life was, I guess any partridge in a storm. Yeah.
3: So sounds like she was just uh, on yep. the lot looking to test drive and. Uh,
2: Randy and ready to roll. Yep. <laughs> um, now, with the Partridge family, both a hit on TV and in record stores, Cassidy was working himself uh, almost literally to death, it, it sounded like. He would work uh, in the studio recording the show all day. Then he would be rushed into a recording studio to record songs well into the night. So he was working about 18-hour days. Initially, uh, Cassidy would ask producers, we're not going to do bubblegum pop, are we? And he would be assured that they were not, when in fact that's all that they ever did for the entire run of the show and and every time he was ever in a studio. They had him recording bubblegum pop songs. Right. Um, he would beg at times to be allowed to stretch out just a little bit musically. He would you know try to tell the producers, look, we can stick mostly with the, the pop stuff that we're doing, but maybe we could just expand our boundaries a little bit. Let me play like a little bit of a of a, of a guitar solo. Let me let, let, let's get into a little bit of rock and roll And he would essentially be told, no, you know, we've got a formula that works, so let's just stay with it. So the guy who loved Hendrix, Clapton, and Jeff Beck kept being force-marched through doing Sugary Sweet, Puppy Love, Pop. I, I, Bonaduce said it was funny that, like, when he would go watch Cassidy record in the studio, you would hear him going like, ba And then as soon as the recording stopped. He'd pick his guitar up and like shred on some like amazing sounding like oh, Hendrix solo or something.
3: I wish some of that stuff got out. I mean And
2: and 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 that the the mothers of the the, the younger kids like him, who's having sex with twenty three year old women yeah. um on the set would be like, Oh my God, David Cassidy is like some devil worshiping Satanist. We need to get our children away from him. <laughs> hey, you're back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He said, quote, I was told you don't change a winning game. So we recorded the same song over and over. Inside was this raging teenager who wanted to say, this is who I am. And then he went like, but that's not what he got to do. The show was a hit. All the music was a hit. And his image was slapped on literally every piece of paraphernalia that is imaginable. Money was absolutely pouring in in every direction related to the Partridge family. But David Cassidy was taking home the the princely sum of $600 a week.
3: Somebody told me he got screwed on a contract here.
2: That's what yeah. the deal he signed paid him. Oof. So he
1: making anything from the magazines or the no,
2: no, he he made six hundred dollars a week. The deal he signed gave them basically ownership of his likeness, his image, his voice, everything. They owned him for six hundred bucks a week.
3: Sounds like his manager didn't have his best interest in mind.
2: I and, and right, and the thing is, I don't even know that he had one when he initially signed his deal. And and, and you know, when you're if you're him, when he's first starting, his his goal was I just want to work, I just want to make some money so I can pay my rent and exist. Yeah. And you know, so when you're a kid and they're like, "Hey, we'll pay you six hundred dollars a week," why, why, David? That's that's over thirty thousand dollars a year. That well, probably we, sounded like a heck of a deal.
3: Now I'm not I'm not supporting a bad deal in any way. I will say that amount in 1970 was
2: probably good. You you For can make us, your sure.
3: you, you can make your ends meet.
2: Sure, oh, oh, definitely. But when he sees his picture on bubblegum cards and frisbees and radios and literally every almost anything that you can name that they could put his picture on, they put it on it, and they sold a lot of them. The TV show was winning its time slot and was a, you know a top twenty show. The, the The albums were selling, the singles were selling. Everybody's making money off of, quote, Keith Partridge, except for the person who played him, basically.
3: For a frame of reference, that would equate to about $209,000 a year.
2: Okay. Not in, in today's money. So oh, money. Yeah, so not, it's, not, it's not, it's not, it wasn't nothing. But yeah, it's definitely it's, not what he should have gotten. Sure, and it's nowhere close to what was, that was being generated by his image.
3: Correct, yeah.
2: where was I? I'm sorry. Okay. Um, but that's what the deal that he signed paid him. He did find a way to cash in for himself though. And that was to play concerts. His first solo show was in Seattle. It sold out in a day and it made him $8,000. So his schedule would become on a daily basis, wake up at 6 a.m. Go to the studio and record the Partridge Family TV show from dusk until dawn. Then go to the recording studio to cut songs. Then play three concerts a day on the weekends. Bonaduce said, quote, I don't know when he slept.
1: He, okay, a couple things. There's sure. no time for Tang with that. Very little. Yeah. And uh, he, it's also kind of like Michael J. Fox. Well, he when he was doing to future, the Back yeah. to the Future and Family Ties at the same time.
2: Yep. Yeah. Like, but this is so this, this is. I also said this is a the the schedule he kept was ridiculous.
3: Yeah, that's wow. that's not sustainable.
2: Uh, uh, no, it, it no, it's not, and, and you'll see that it's not uh, eventually. Okay, so he said attendance records almost everywhere he played. He played two sellout shows at the Astrodome in a day. So that was two shows at the Astrodome equated to 112,000 tickets. A day. In a day. Unbelievable. For two con- he played two concerts at the 56,000 seat Houston Astrodome that were completely sold out.
3: And again, what he's making does not equate to what he's bringing in.
2: Uh, right. But, but at this point now, the, the concerts were actually a way that he was able to put money in his pocket. Okay. This this was something that was not covered by his contract. So he if he goes and per, and performs these concerts, he was actually making a, a a good bit of money doing these shows. He's making bankers. He sold out Madison Square Garden in a matter of hours. Oh, no. He sold out Wembley Stadium. He <laughs> well, sold out concert venues throughout Europe and Australia. And I'm just going to tell you if you're unfamiliar um, with his shows, I want you to think about the, the videos that you've seen of the Beatles when they first arrived in America and they're playing at Shea Stadium or wherever they're playing where they walk on the stage and all you hear is this high pitched scream that's, that starts the minute they come on stage and stops when they leave. Mm-hmm. That's what a David Cassidy concert was like. Wow. It was just this wall of high pitched shrieking from the crowd from the minute that Uh, from the minute that basically the house lights would, would, would go down until he, the the show ended just. And I had no idea. I mean, I knew he was popular, but I guess it had never occurred to me. A that he was selling out Wembley and the Astrodome and Madison square garden and places like that. And that the reaction was very similar to what the Beatles experienced when they first got to America.
1: Wow. Wow.
2: Uh, I mean, were, were you guys, aware of that because I, I, I i'll just be honest with you i was not
1: not a clue okay so i i think i had maybe you know behind the music on in the background i feel like that was in the back of my brain but it just didn't register
3: right I knew he was keith partridge any of the partridge family had albums but this is all new to me yeah, yeah.
2: me too yeah. riots were not uncommon at his concerts Oh geez. a photographer oh. noted um that at one show 700 girls were taken out of one show in europe on either stretchers or pallets what so what would happen is that girls would rush the stage and in the process of doing that they would often trample other girls to get there and they would smash you know girls that had really good seats up front up against like guardrails and barricades jesus it was not uncommon for him to have to stop in the middle of shows while security would try to restore order and literally uh, like pull fans to safety who are being crushed.
3: Unbelievable. Wow. So
2: basically he would walk on stage and the crowd goes crazy and there would just be a surge toward the, toward the stage. So you would think like, Oh, well, I've got really good seats. How lucky am I? I'm front row. Well, yeah, not really because you're going to get mashed against the barricade and not be able to breathe.
3: There are 600 people behind you who want your seat
2: right well so as he's doing these these concerts generally he would play for about an hour or so if he was able to get through an entire set without there being carnage essentially in front of him because it would occasionally happen he would not even be able to finish you know whatever he planned to go out there and sing because things would get so crazy they would be like they would basically just tell him like Dave just you just need to leave the stage man just take off go 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 wow yeah, it it's it, it's it's bananas to to watch this. But on the the uh, nights that he was actually able to perform a full set, it is very likely that one of the songs he would have played would have been his first solo single. That was a cover of the Associations Cherish. So, we've heard David already with the Partridge family. This was his first uh, solo hit, and it was a big top-ten hit for him. Let's listen to that now. This is David Cassidy with uh, a big hit of his called Cherish.
4: i uh-huh. don't know how many times I wished that I had told you. you don't know how many times I wish that I could hold you. You don't know how many times I wish that I could hold you into someone could cherish me as much as I cherish you.
1: I love that i love that i love that so much i love that like i love jensen like i love
2: Freddy. so, so here, here's the thing we were, were talking as that played and you asked me an interesting question you said wow why why is it that when he got to do something his name was on he's still doing the bubblegummy, you know kind of pop music instead of it's lawrence Will. the rock and roll that he loves. Yeah, this is lawrence well because, because well but it, and the answer is because he had to just basically record what he was told to it wasn't like, all right. Well, my name's on this one, so I get to take control of the things. It's like, no, you're still going to sing what they tell you to sing, David. But they owned him. Yeah, they they pretty much owned him, uh, but they wouldn't for very much longer. Mm. So, as Cassidy and his castmates reconvened to start the second season of The Partridge Family,
1: whoa, wait, 600- we're only one season in.
2: Yeah, we're only one season in. Yes.
1: What?
2: Um, as Cassidy and his castmates, uh, reconvened to start the second season of the Partridge family, the $600 a week salary continued to stick in his crawl, but a lawyer found an out for him. He had apparently signed his deal before he was a legal adult. Now, huh. reading some of these stories and the timelines and stuff, i may, maybe the age of consent in California wasn't 18 at the time. It may maybe you had to be, a, maybe it was a little bit older. Um, or maybe when he first started doing the, the TV shows like Medical Center and Bonanza and stuff, maybe it was that original deal that, that carried over into the Partridge family. But whatever, wh- whichever it was, basically when he signed the contract that sold his likeness, his image, his voice and everything for $600 a week, he was not legally an adult at the time in the state of California. Huh. So that left producers with a couple of options. Cassidy could walk, depriving the show of its main draw. They could immediately remove everything from store shelves that bared his image and take his voice off of all recordings. Or they could renegotiate. Huh. I feel like, uh, yeah. Yeah, with all the leverage, Cassidy received a deal that made him one of the highest paid actors on television. That's my boy. Still, even though the the financial thing, the end of things, was taken care of, and he was now making a salary commensurate to what he should have been, given how much money he was bringing in to so many other people.
1: Maybe now he can actually take a nap.
2: (laughs) Well, he was still left unfulfilled by campy scripts and candy corn music. He also didn't have the love or respect of his father that he really craved. He said, quote, I wanted his love. I wanted him to say good job, but he didn't. And I think, I think Will the Thrill can weigh in on this, um, and, as can I. When you're a young man about the age Cassidy would have been then, 20, 21, 22, there's not many things you want more than your dad to respect you. To look at you as, hey, look, my son has grown up to be has grown up to be a man, and I'm so proud of him. Even if he doesn't say it, you just want to know it.
3: Agreed. Yeah.
2: And he never got that.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Do In you have those teenage years where you're kind of pushing away from that, and then right. like you said, when you get to be that age, it's more of a you you want to earn, like you said, you you would, you want to know that it's there.
2: Right. You want to. You want your dad to think, "Hey, I grew up okay." He thinks I'm a pretty good man. He views me as a, a. He views me as a man. He respects me, and he thinks that I've accomplished something. I've done something with my life. I'm not a loser. Correct. Right. I think almost every guy universally wants that from his dad, and David never got it. Instead, his dad his dad would actually deride him. He would flip at his hair and say, love your hair. Who does it? The beauty shop down the street and things like that. Uh, David said he thinks that his old man might have been jealous because, you know, look, he was young. He was good looking. He was very wealthy once he got this new deal. and, And honestly, he was considerably more successful than Jack was. Yeah. I mean, Jack was, Jack was, a, you know, he was a respected Broadway performer and he had done some TV and stuff. So in terms of what critics might've said, maybe Jack would have been viewed more favorably, but in terms of just pure popularity, eyeballs on the TV screen, butts in seats, dollars rolling in, David was considerably more successful than his father was.
3: Yeah. It sounds that way.
2: Yeah. And it, and it, it seemed like maybe that rubbed Jack the wrong way and he, He just couldn't come to grips with the fact that his son had kind of surpassed him a little bit in some ways. Then we come to the infamous Rolling Stone story that I have referenced several times during the course of this podcast. Cassidy desperately wanted the world to see him for who he really was and not as the carefully crafted image or as the character that he had been presented as for so long. Some saw it as absolute career suicide, but Cassidy made sure that Rolling Stone magazine was able to view him as, quote, drunk and stoned, riding around in a limousine. <laughs> in the course of the, the the interview for the Rolling Stone article, which I think was published in 1972, if you are interested in anything we've said so far or you're a fan of David Cassidy, go look that story up. It's online and you can find it. It's fascinating. It's a great read. There are parts of it that are a a hair antiquated now. Some of the terminology and stuff they say is not stuff that would be used now, but it's a fascinating picture of David Cassidy. It's a little peek into his world and it almost seems like him crying out to be seen for who he really is and not as Keith Partridge. So again, he made sure that they, they knew that he was, (laughs) noted that he was, quote, drunk and stoned, riding around in a limousine. He talked about being frustrated by his image. As he performed to a sold-out matinee crowd at Madison Square Garden, a woman watching from backstage was interviewed who said that she had had sex with Cassidy the night before. She said that, quote, he was a good F, but that she was disappointed seeing him perform, saying that the show that he was doing reminded her of, quote, a bad Vegas production. Oh. He drank he drank wine and smoked a joint as he was being interviewed. He talked about the grind that was his life. He talked about the fact that he was exhausted. Although anybody would have been, because he was essentially working 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. He said that there were times that he, he basically had producers holding a gun to his head figuratively speaking, saying, like, Come on, David, you gotta you gotta knock this vocal out. We gotta get the album out. When he was he he, he would be have laryngitis or be sick or have the flu and he couldn't sing, but they're making him do it anyway.
1: I mean that 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 was the thing, though. I mean, it's gotten a lot better now, but when I do Judy Garland, you guys are gonna be horrified.
2: Yeah, I'm sure.
1: Like they did they do Hollywood does not have a great track record in the past with their kids. They like, treated them like yeah yeah look at Shirley Temple I mean yeah. she pumped out like 90 movies in two weeks I mean yeah
2: um there's an anecdote about him returning after this show at Madison Square Garden sold out matinee performance to a hotel to find two girls waiting for him at his hotel room door I'm not going to tell you exactly what happened but suffice it to say that the two young ladies began to kiss and grope one another. Okay. Obviously, tipping to David that the two of them were interested in um, some stuff,
1: <laughs> as the French would call it, a menage a trois.
2: Menage a three, as okay. the as the mother of on uh, South Park um, called it. Once upon a time, um, he walked right past him Huh. And when a, a member of his entourage prodded him about passing up what was obviously being offered, he said, quote, girls like that do nothing for me. Huh. And he said he said that he would have felt awful about himself if he'd had sex with them. Did you tell
3: him to call Bonaduce? Because that would have been awesome. He
2: probably, I, I, you know, it, it, that's not, uh, was not specifically said in the story. I'm sure David would have showed up had he been.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's always nice to know that you have a pitch hitter.
2: <laughs> right, right. You call in the bonaduce.
1: <laughs> You're Cassidy adjacent.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but he said basically that he would have felt he would have felt awful about himself if he had had sex with them.
1: Wow, interesting.
2: Um, now it also detailed that a member of his entourage felt bad for him, gave them a room, and that they ended up following him the next day. So it actually turned like kind of creepy, scary. Oh yeah, it's a horrible
1: yeah. story.
2: Um, The story detailed uh, the panic and the riots at his show and they laid out uh, what happened at a concert in Cleveland where security was apparently completely overrun and Cassidy was mobbed like a literal mob of women got to Cassidy backstage. Like they, they bull rushed security, which was apparently pretty lax that evening and they actually got to him and he was petrified.
1: I can imagine.
2: Yeah, so you know how he escaped. This part was actually kind of funny. He said that a member of the monkeys' entourage had taught him a technique of getting not down on all fours and crawling out of those kind of situations. Because <laughs> he said he said it's really weird. He said what they wanted was that they they're grabbing at my hair. Ooh. They want my hair. They're gra- they were like like yanking out. He said so suddenly when you're below their the level of their knees and you're 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 crawling he said like they didn't know what to do and that's how he was able to get away from this and it's almost funny like well what man would not want to be mobbed by women and it's like no it was like really a dangerous situation where they're 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 mobbing him and yanking his hair out and stuff
1: um yeah i mean that's terrifying that's and you've got no safety
2: yeah none at that point for that episode of uh, or that edition of rolling stone he posed almost completely naked on the cover in a picture taken by famous photographer uh, Anne Leibovitz. Yeah, Annie Leibovitz also did the fame.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, she's, she's done a ton. I mean, she's, she's yes. famous, but she did do Lennon.
2: Now, Cassidy's, quote, people lost their ever-loving minds when this, this uh, edition of Rolling Stone hit newsstands. Um, Bonaduce, I saw an interview with him where he was like, you know, there were things he said in that interview that the only conclusion you can draw is that he wanted to be fired. Mm-hmm. He was ready for everything to be over with. Like, like he wanted the Partridge family producers and everybody who was handling his career to be outraged and taken aback and to, and to, to fire him. Like there's no other conclusion you could come to. But other than a couple of, um, of, of his quote, people losing their minds, it did not put a single dent into Cassidy mania.
4: Hmm.
2: which which the reason he's almost crying out in in this article like i am not the guy you see on tv i'm not the guy you hear on these records that's not me this is me the guy who's drunk and high and tired and worn out and having sex with women but not those two because they're creepy (laughs) necessarily and but he wanted people i want the people people to see the real me
1: now now and, question we're we're only in like nineteen seventy
2: two right right
1: this has only been going on for two years
2: right, but he's already tired of it and wants to move on and Bonaduce said like like if you read that article and if you and and, and and i've I read the whole thing, it's a really long read it's probably a ten thousand word article like it it takes you an hour to read it very worthwhile and that is, that is what it seems like it's like I want to, to take the image that everybody has of me and I want to destroy it. Like I want to blow it up and I'll show you who I really am, which is not this sweet little 16 year old, the, the, the quote 16, 17 year old character I'm playing who I'm not, I'm not the guy you see in the magazine whose little puppy dog is, is taking a bubble bath with me and all this stuff. I'm, I'm a grown man. Who likes having sex and smoking joints? There you go. <laughs> it's almost like it's like he wanted to torpedo his own image. Yeah, like Michael
1: Michael Phelps, right?
2: Sort of, sort of. Who's who's <laughs> who blew his up in South Carolina, of course. Because where, yeah. where else would you have done that? <laughs> um, but uh, honestly, other than a couple of his handlers and managers and people, nobody cared. And I don't know if it's just that his fans didn't read Rolling Stone or if they didn't care, but the show was even more popular in seasons two and three. Like, like it did nothing to, not only did it not diminish his popularity, his popularity seemed to increase.
3: That's any publicity, right?
2: I, I guess so. Cassidy for a time had to, now this part was actually kind of scary. He had to move to a holiday inn in Hollywood with there being round the clock security in front of his door because there was a, a apparently a very legitimate kidnapping threat made against him. Oh jeez. Like this this was of- this was such a big deal that the FBI became involved.
1: So like the governor of Michigan kind of level of
2: or, or beyond it, it was credible enough that the FBI became involved and they said you can't stay in your home anymore.
1: Oh wow. Put so out- he had to
2: move he had to move to a Holiday Inn in Hollywood and had to have, which which there had to be security at the door like 24-7. He was never allowed to go anywhere without like armed security guards around mm. him. Wow. And, and this uh, like uh, very understandably completely freaked him out. However, the FBI eventually concluded that he was in no danger of actually being kidnapped because he was literally never alone. But he felt that way more and more as things went along he felt alone he was he said he said that he felt extremely isolated and withdrawn and he said what happened is that the bigger the fame got the more the mania increased Mm -hmm. and the more that happened the more he withdrew and the tighter his circle of friends got and the more he just wanted to to not be around people so it's it's a it's a weird dichotomy that you're literally never alone. There are always people around you. You have millions of people watching you on television. You're performing in front of tens of thousands of fans. You're, you're surrounded by more people than almost any other person is, but you feel completely alone and isolated. That, that's, that's kind of the, the picture that, that, that is painted is that he was this, this almost a prisoner of his own success. Soras. Well that
1: at that point at that point it seems like and this is this is pretty much for any celebrity you don't know who your real friends are right because this could be someone <laughs> get ahead trying to get money trying to get fame like you don't know who your real friends are. I would have said you know if if I were Cassidy, I would probably trust Hyman and that would be it like that would mm-hmm. be my friend that's my friend. And, and
2: I want to tell you that that that's a very good, very, very astute on your point. Hyman remains friends with him throughout his lifetime.
1: Oh, that's
4: and,
2: and so at a certain point, um, you know, he and Hyman were, were roommates. They were best friends. Even once Cassidy made it and he buys like a big, nice house and all this stuff, Hyman would live in the guest cottage. But Hyman never sponged off of him. Hyman always worked. Had his own money, had his own job, totally independent, didn't didn't ask Cassidy for a thing.
1: See, that's 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 excellent. That's the real friend. The, real friend.
2: The, 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 the only the extent to which he ever, quote, cashed in on Cassidy Mania was when David asked him to to like sell merchandise at his concerts. But even that even that was benefiting David too. It's not like he was sponging off of him. He was working. Right. At, at that point, right. So that's actually a really good call. That that's probably the guy you should trust. The guy you've been yeah, buddies with I since would. you were in in high school.
1: Yeah, it's pre fr- and like because at this point, you know, I have worked on shows in the past where you start to feel like family with the other cast members, mm-hmm. and you know, it's that that's that's kind of the family that you can trust. And anything beyond that, like you 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 hit a certain point in fame where people are just like you have your entourage and then you have the hangers on and then you have the people that are trying to drain you and mm-hmm. then you have the people that are there just to say they they just to say they had sex with you yep yeah that's that's a point of pride like oh i you know that's the Gosh, whole, like if you, I, get rubies.
2: you know if i had a nickel for every woman who, who claims she had sex with me gosh i'd have 10 or 15 cents probably
1: <laughs> you would,
3: tens of cents
2: yeah. you would, I, actually i'd have a nick i'd have a nickel because there's only one who own up to it
1: I <laughs> was gonna say you'd night. actually owe someone about 23 dollars right
2: i was just there's a promissory note <laughs> 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 involved
1: but but yeah the psychology of that can be really hard and not and that's for full-grown adults think about being a child coming into this like i know sure. I, he, he, he was 20s. basically well no he was not a legal adult no but,
2: point, yeah. when he so signed like, right
1: when he signed but you can only imagine that i mean that's we make the joke about kids stars but that, this is a real thing that weighs on them
2: yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah
1: they don't like you can't even trust your parents that's why the coogan account was created because well jackie coogan's parents stole all his money
2: so but but look at uh, I, I mean there there are examples yeah. we could we could cite right now but at one point the quote former child star thing was almost a running joke. Oh yeah. And the yeah, thing is, is I mean again it's I mean it's not really funny because you're talking about you're taking 15 16 17 18 year old kids totally immature totally unprepared to handle massive fame again will imagine being 18 years old and having this thrust on you. I, I was, this level of fame, this much money, this much acclaim, the drugs and the booze and the women and stuff that just, I mean, thrown at you when you're a kid and completely un, unprepared to deal with the, the everything that comes with that. Because As
1: I, his wife, can I just say, I think he would have been fine.
3: No, I, I disagree. I, I really? think money amplifies who you are, which means I would have been an exponential jackass at 18. <laughs>
1: Here I am trusting yeah. that you'd be a good person.
3: I've had time to, to ferment. I've had time to... We to, fermented I, I'm, together. I'm like a fine wine.
1: We've we've, yeah. we've known each other since we were 23. I know,
3: exactly. We've grown together. I will admit, <laughs> my late teens, I was a moron. I mean, you're still kind of dumb. Yeah, I mean, I've come a long way, though. Uh, but th- <laughs> the point is, TJ, that I, I do reiterate that. I think being thrust in that situation, and we can say, you know, this person would have done well, they may not have. But at the end of the day, you don't know. It's
2: still a crapshoot. No, I know. I wouldn't have done well.
1: But look at somebody like Dakota Fanning, who's been, what, she was eight when she started her career? Six, I think, yeah,
2: something seven. like that. Yeah.
1: She's totally. I mean, she grew up fine, but then you look at somebody like Lindsay Lohan, and then yeah. she's kind of like the legitimate poster child for, you know, Kid Stars Going Wrong. And then right. And where Danny Bonaducci yeah, is like Danny.
2: the OG kid star gone wrong. They, he's He was one of the first. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: right. he, he checked all the boxes. I mean, yeah. yes.
2: Isolated and withdrawn, David Cassidy announced that the fourth season of The Partridge Family would be his last. The show could not survive without him. So season four would be the end for the show entirely. The Partridge Family, unfortunately, in that fourth season was moved into what I'm just going to call kind of a death slot in in terms of uh night and time it was running as it went head to head with all in the family
4: Ouch. oh
3: yeah so night?
2: understandably ratings plummeted
3: because now the death slot is friday
1: night right yeah death Slot is friday at 8:00. friday evening yeah. like prime yeah, well, is thursdays at eight mm-hmm. o'clock
2: Yes, but, but again, uh, on Sunday night against Archie Bunker in the nineteen seventies was a was a just was death. You you weren't going to do anything with that. Yeah, game over. Yeah, once the show ended, Cassidy decided that he was going to do a farewell tour. So at, at, as the final episodes are running, he's he's doing a, a a big farewell tour, and fans are clamoring for tickets. He's doing sold out show after sold out show across the globe. Drawing from the now, get this: We've so the show ran for four for four years. That's it. Drawing from the ten partridge family albums and five solo albums that he pumped out in four years. Ooh. That that that's that, I want you to read, he did fifteen albums and and countless other singles, but fifteen albums in four years. That's so awesome. four a year. That's insane. Essentially David Cassidy was doing an album every what about three months? Yeah. I guess.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um, but he's on this he's on this big farewell concert tour and it's, it's sold out night after night. The next to last show was at London's White City Stadium. <laughs> Unfortunately, nearly eight hundred fans, almost all young females, were injured in a crush for the stage a photographer on the the behind the music episode was reading from a, basically a diary that he kept and he he compared it to vietnam wow that there were 800 young women laid out on stretchers and basically anything they could find to to put the injured on jeez and and Cassidy said you know here i am i, I just i want to go out and perform for for people i was good at it I enjoyed doing it. They wanted to see me. How did it get to this? It's a fair question, right? where there, there's almost there's almost literally like a casualty count at the end of every show. Well, how many people got hurt tonight? Yeah. And he's like, I'm I'm just I'm out here just playing like singing pop music for for girls. Like, how how did we get to where people are getting injured? This is ridiculous. But it actually ended up getting worse than that. Among the nearly 800 fans who was injured at that uh, concert in London was a 14-year-old girl named Bernadette Whalen. She ended up being taken to Hammersmith Hospital uh, unconscious, and she never regained consciousness. Oh, jeez. She died four days after the show. Jeez. Now, it was later revealed that she may have had a heart condition, but regardless, Cassidy was understandably heartbroken. And in an interview I saw, he basically said, all this girl wanted to do in the world was come see me performing a concert and she died. And obviously it's not his fault that it happened. You you can blame people overreacting or or terrible security or whatever, but he he, he took it almost like it was his fault. You know, he, he played one more concert after that. It was I, I think either the day she was buried or the day afterward. He did not go to her funeral because he did not want to turn it into a circus. He did call the family and talked to them he did send flowers and all that kind of stuff but he go went out and performed his his last ever concert and he said when it was over he walked off the stage he said and i was looking back at basically five years and he got on a helicopter and flew away and he looked at what, what he said was kind of a mess behind him of just a, 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 a mammoth swath of people and he said Whew, he was relieved wow you would think like, "Oh gosh, that my my career is ending. this is terrible he He said he could not have been he couldn't have been happier wow yeah it was he said it was it was a relief to to have that done and over and behind him.
1: The thing was that I, I just get this overall sensation that he didn't want it, yeah ever yeah. he got he got into something because he's like, "Oh, I want to make money and then not realizing what went with that.
2: You know, yeah
1: and then and that's not not saying that that's any fault of his i'm not victim blaming but right. there's, a, there's a lot that goes into i mean heck there's a lot that goes into this podcast i mean we've got like eight thousand listeners whatever you know we there's work that we have to do that i wasn't prepared to do you know we have to answer questions uh be present at meetings for our network and doing our social media and doing you know i i wasn't aware that we had to do all this stuff that goes with it i can't even imagine what that was like for a kid yeah you know well and, and this is just this is seriously like a, a i'd say a minor podcast and i knowing the things that we have to go through but think about what he had to deal with as a celebrity he has absolutely he can't trust anyone right. he's got credible threats against his life He's got, he gets mobbed everywhere he goes. He's got to be forced to do things that he never wanted to do in the first place. And he wanted to create his own kind of music. I mean, you, you got to feel for him. Yeah. yeah I would feel and the same way.
2: He and, and the thing with him was, he said something to the effect of, you know, I was a 22-year-old man playing a very innocent 18-year-old kid, which he, he said was quote twisted and wrong just to start with but he also said that he felt taken advantage of by quote the machine
1: obviously yeah Yeah. yes absolutely yeah
2: so um when once it was over um he he also said that he was afraid he was going to end up either being like elvis or that he was going to be a a, like a has-been teen idol which he didn't want to be so he he left keith partridge behind and basically Wasn't heard from much in the United States for the next two years. He did record albums that continued to be popular and well-received in other parts of the world. He uh, collaborated with Beach Boy, Bruce Johnston, to record, and I was not aware of this, to be honest with you, to record I Write the Songs. It didn't chart in America at all, but it hit number 11 in the U.K., That was the first version of what would become a gigantic signature song, of course, for Barry Manilow. His, but but uh, I, I did not know this. Cassidy's version was the first to be a hit anywhere. So I tell you what, I, I have never heard this. Even in preparation for this show, I have, ne- I did not listen to this. So this is going to be a pretty genuine reaction. Let's all listen to David Cassidy doing a song that would be made famous not too long after this by barry manilow but was first a hit for him in the uk and a few other countries this is david cassidy with i write the Songs." <laughs> okay what do we think
1: i you know what i love david cassidy so i've gotten no notes (laughs) it doesn't it does not sound too far removed from barry manilow's
2: no it doesn't that's kind of what i thought it's not tremendously different than the version that most people are familiar with
1: yeah and i know we were talking during the break and i said vocally it sounds a lot like george michael
2: i hear that i actually can hear that a little bit
1: I even pick up a very slight undertone of Billy Joel. I could see that too. Yeah. Okay. A little good. bit. A little yeah. bit. Like turnstiles.
3: Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah turnstiles. Oh, good, good pull there. Thank you. Yeah, there's no <laughs>
2: okay, so at this point, Cassidy is kind of an, uh, he's kind of disappeared from the scene in America, but he's still having some, you know, hits uh, uh, in the UK with this song. Unfortunately, right around this time, something else comes up that is extremely uh, painful for him. We talked about how he had some unresolved issues with his father, Jack, that the two of them, he never felt like he got the love and respect from his father that he really craved. And unfortunately, there would never be a reconciliation.
1: That's a shame.
2: Jack Cassidy divorced Shirley Jones in 1975 and he was drinking extremely heavily by this time per david's retelling on december 11th 1976 he asked shirley jones to meet him for a few drinks she declined he asked another woman to come out and drink with him but she also declined so he supposedly hit multiple bars in west hollywood and drank fairly heavily at all of them and returned home alone and intoxicated in the early morning hours of December 12th, Jack Cassidy lit a cigarette and fell asleep on his Naugahyde couch.
1: Oh, no. Oh, wow.
2: The cigarette ignited the couch and flames quickly spread through his apartment. Jeez. And he died in the fire. And I'm going to spare you some of the details because they're, they're pretty bad. Ugh. David said that when he heard, quote, I fell to my knees and had this uncontrollable wailing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to call it, but wailing. I just wanted to love him and hold him and their relationship was so frayed and strained that the two had not spoken at, at the time of Jack's death for nine and a half months.
1: Wow, wow.
2: And, and again, David said this went back to the fact that maybe Jack was a little bit resentful of him or jealous because David had, had, had reached, uh, I mean, untold levels of fame and wealth and fortune and success and everything. And I mean, although Jack was a very well respected you know actor and performer he he never got to the level that his son did in in terms of success as it is defined in that industry so and I'm just going to tell you i there's there's a lot of stuff about Jack Cassidy I'm leaving out He will be a really interesting episode one day for for one of us to tackle huh because there's there's that a there's a lot there's a lot going on in that guy's life.
1: I feel like I should take that since he was Broadway. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, well, if you do a little, just just if you just read what it has about him on Wikipedia, you'll be like, oh yeah, doing this one. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But yeah, he said that he fell to his knees and just that it was just uncontrollable wailing because he just he he that, because that reconciliation never happened. Trying to give his life some direction, David did get married in 1977 to a, a woman named Kay Linds, and he began pursuing some more serious acting roles and you could maybe think look at that in terms of ones that he thought that would have made his dad proud possibly if if he if his dad was flipping about him being keith partridge well maybe if he was doing some some heavier stuff that it would have made his dad proud of him that that's certainly one way that you could interpret you know him going that direction in 19 you know less than a year after his father passed away He starred uh, in an episode of Police Story in 1978, for which he was nominated for an Emmy. Based on that success, NBC ordered a series called David Cassidy, Man Undercover. It lasted 13 episodes. And Cassidy said that he feels like it was not a success because of a couple of reasons. One, the scripts were really bad. But he he also said that there was a a big segment of his fan base who just would not accept him as anything but Keith Partridge.
3: I can see that, yeah, yeah.
2: Now, uh, now the funny thing is, I, I did read up about this show a little bit. the The idea behind this show was basically lifted and used in a successful show about six years later called Twenty One Jump Street.
1: Huh, hey, I loved that show.
2: Yeah, so it it was basically he's an undercover detective playing a high school student is kind of what the show was about which is pretty much what 21 jump street was hmm, yep hard to believe that we're talking well i guess if he was um uh, i'm trying to say what, what the year is, 78 no uh 21 jump street was actually 87 so about nine years later and uh, but for some reason when i'm we're talking 1978 i'm not thinking that fox is going to exist in nine years <laughs> but there we are yeah the, uh, that show was, uh, like I said, it was canceled after only a 13-week run. Cassidy said that he did not handle that, the failure very well. He had not handled success well, generally. And so now he's dealing with failure for one of the first times. And he said, quote, I started drinking pretty heavily, getting numb. Despite having earned about $8 million or having that much in the bank at one point during the height of his Partridge family success, people that he had trusted either squandered or ran off with most of his money. He said that at one point in the early 1980s, he had about $2,000 in cash and more than $800,000 worth of debt.
1: Oh! Yeah.
2: He said, and quote, no prospect of work. Yikes.
1: What what year is this?
2: We're talking about 81, 82 by this time.
1: Holy crap. Wow. Yeah. So, I, mean, I am going to
3: pull that number
2: because he's yeah, eight
3: hundred thousand.
2: He was eight. He said he had two. He had about two grand cash money in his pocket and about eight hundred thousand dollars in debt in nineteen eighty and in, in nineteen eighty one or two ish. Yeah, early eighties.
3: Holy oh, lord! Whoa! It is the equivalent today of roughly two point five million dollars. Woo! what was the debt was it like mortgages i mean
2: what was it? Uh, uh, well yeah apparently you know he had he had earned a ton of money
3: yeah for sure
2: but but just like billy joel and just like a lot of other people we could mention he trusted people he probably should not have trusted yeah which billy joel he, totally he, admitted to right and but you know if you're a, a young kid you're a musician and actor you're not necessarily i mean finance is not <laughs> your expertise Correct. You don't know how to handle money. You don't know how to invest. You don't know how to, you don't understand the stock market and things like that. So you, you, you entrust people who perhaps you shouldn't.
3: Correct. Yeah. And
2: that's what happened to him. I've I, To hear him tell it. a lot of them invested his money foolishly and some of them just stole it from him and, and left him holding the bag to the tune of $800,000 worth of debt, which, you know, translates to about two and a half million dollars worth of debt now.
3: Correct. Right. Um,
2: But he said the bad part is that at this point, he really had no prospect of work even. To make things worse, he and Kay divorced at the same time. He said, quote, I became a recluse. I was good at it. He ended up having to crash on Sam Hyman's couch. The
1: guy who used to live in his... Who lived
2: in his guest cottage, yes. So he basically has to go crawling to his friend and, and, and crash on his couch. And I saw an interview where he said... You want to know how, how he said, how low was I? He said, laying on the street, licking the curb. How low is that?
1: Oh God. Now, I don't think he was literally
2: licking a curb, which I imagine, you know, would taste like pee and car exhaust, (laughs) but figuratively he, 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 like, that's how I was as low as you could possibly be. I was completely broke. I was a former millionaire who was having to crash on his buddy's couch that's how bad off I was.
3: It's a visceral image there.
2: Yeah, very much so. He says that at one point, quote, I was beating my fist on the floor saying, why God? And asking him to uh, take his pain away. So at this point, he feels like a complete failure and loser. And he's he says there was a point where he was literally beating his fists on the floor, crying out to God to take his pain away, which is, you know, I mean, when... You're flat broke. Your wife has left you. You have no career and no prospects, and you're you're, you're crying out to God. God, just what about? And he said, I, "I know I've done a lot of bad things. I'm sorry, but please just take this burden off of me." Wow.
1: that just absolutely breaks my heart. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah completely. Uh, Sam Hyman said, "quote Everybody has to hit their bottom, I guess," and that was his. In 1984, however, Cassidy started putting his life back together. For one thing, for the first time in a while, he picked up his guitar and he started playing and he sat down at the piano and he started playing and he started writing songs again. He put his personal life back in order. He married a horse breeder named Meryl Tans. He also recorded the single The Last Kiss, which featured background vocals by George Michael. You said that he sounded like George Michael uh, earlier. Things really turned around when... He starred in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat on Broadway. There you go. He and was a success.
1: That would actually he was be s- taken up by another child star, which was... Donny Osmond? Uh, Donny Osmond. Yes, yeah, Donny Osmond. Osmond Os- 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 would pick that up, too.
2: But now I want you to think about the significance of what I just said to you. He was a success on Broadway.
1: Yeah.
2: Just like his dad was. Yep. And he said that he thought of Jack every single night that he was on stage
1: which makes me wonder if he's if he's david cassidy doing joseph and the amazing technicolor Dreamcoat. how long has stunt casting been a thing on broadway because i never really paid attention to it until recently which is weird because you guys know i've been a broadway fan since i was like eight because Mm -hmm. it was the only other music my mom would let me listen to and that's that.
2: That's not true. You could listen to all the Lee Greenwood records that you wanted.
1: <laughs> you know, I'm proud to be an American. Uh, At least I know I'm free. Any old, any old stretch of blacktop will do. Wasn't that Lee yep. uh, I think so. But yeah, like, how long has stunt casting been a thing? Because they're 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 not bringing him in on talent alone. They're bringing him in because they're, it's David Cassidy. David Cassidy,
2: yeah, right.
1: And it's and this is happening because Hugh Jackman came, would come in on Broadway as the Music Man, and you've got anytime a show opens up, there's going to be a star in it, and that's there's that's even a pivotal plot twist on the TV show on NBC Smash, where they brought in Uma Thurman's character because they needed a name star power, yeah. and they needed star power, and so I'm wondering how long that lasted because you got to think they bring him in because he's David Cassidy as. Joseph and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor dreamcoke
2: But the the thing is, is that Cassidy was very. It, I mean, that what you're saying is true. But Cassidy was very talented. No question. I mean, he could he could a hundred percent. I mean, carry the role and and do everything that was required of him.
1: Have you seen me freak out at every song we played of David? Uh, no,
2: you have. It's it's been humorous. <laughs> <laughs> it's been almost comical watching LD loser crap every time i said okay we're gonna play david cassidy song now
4: oh
1: i'm excited
2: i'm Um, sorry
1: i just giggled i apologize i gotta put money in the giggle jar
2: but but he said that that this was you know he was literally blocks from where he used to watch his dad perform and he said that every single night that he was on stage he thought about jack cassidy and hoped that his dad was proud of him um But the other thing is that, and this was, this was one of the most improbable things about his comeback that he ended up in musical theater, maybe not a shock necessarily, but in 1990, for the first time in almost 20 years, David Cassidy returned to the American top 40 with a single called lying to myself. So that since that was the final chart hit of his life, Let's hear that now. This is David Cassidy with his a big comeback hit from 1990 called "Lying to Myself."
1: You know what I got thing I hate songs that fade out just in the dance song
2: long yeah long cold fades I hate them
1: okay. they're,
2: they're 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 trash and radio.
1: and they're
3: repetitive I, I do know what song this reminds me of DJ
2: okay all right guys so we, we've listened to that song now little different sound than okay. we've heard previously
1: okay hang on uh, before you guys do this how about write yours down on your on your phone I'm gonna I'm, we go. we're gonna play a game called yep. you guys have you guys have Decided that this song sounds like something else. I'm going to be the moderator, okay?
2: Okay. There's a very distinct. Okay, there was a sound true. I picked up about halfway through, that to me, like it, this, it's they that that sounded very much like another artist. Okay. And Will uh, Will the Thrill said he thinks he knows what I'm going to say, so we're going to see.
1: Okay. Well, okay. Are we ready? I've got, I've, got I've, I've got his answer here. I've got his answer here what is your answer
2: it sounds like a b-side by survivor
1: oh no oh, no not the same one that this is what uh, will the picked. pick
2: okay missing you by that.
1: tom Waits.
2: i can hear that a little bit actually yep okay.
1: so and if okay. it sounds
2: like miss and if it sounds like missing you by tom waits then it sounds like hysteria Huh? yes it does because those songs if you listen to them back to back sometimes you and
3: yeah, yeah.
2: And and just I was I'm just gonna say and be, be forewarned that it's gonna blow your mind.
1: <laughs>
2: They're almost the same song. It was John I don't know if, did missing you? Right? Uh, I, yeah, and yeah. And I don't know if that's because I don't know if Mutt Lang produced both of them. I know he did Hysteria. Yes, he um, did. I don't know if he did with with Waits too. But anyway, that to me sounds like a Survivor B side or something. Huh. Not not as universally catchy as the stuff we've played up to now. I would say. Now you're you're the big fan here, LD. What did you think?
1: It's it's very '90s. Yes, early '90s. It yes. is very. It's you. You mentioned the heights earlier. <laughs> you yeah. reminded me of the of the <laughs> heights.
3: Wow,
2: <laughs> and a little bit of a TJ Jude Cole, a little bit. Maybe, maybe a little bit. That that same, and that would have been right around the same time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tonight, Mr. Big for the full hour. <laughs> Johnny H. <hates> jazz. <laughs> the screaming cheetah wheelies taking your calls. And
1: every single episode, those aren't even real people. Glass like, Tiger, stop it!
2: <laughs> Tonight, Harvey Danger taking your calls. Not just surf, go ahead, please.
3: <laughs> Weedus. Oh, nice! Well done.
2: Tonight, Crocus.
3: Oh, you had to go to oh, Crocus. Yeah. Yeah. You, you had,
4: had
3: to market. go to Crocus.
2: I like him. Um, um, so. Okay, now, now this is we're getting way, way into LD territory here. So, you know, he was on, uh, he was a part of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat on Broadway. Cassidy also starred in FX at the MGM Grand in the late 90s and made it the highest grossing show on the Vegas Strip. Are you familiar with that show, LD?
1: I am not. Okay. I know it in name e- only.
2: EFX. It was apparently, it, Blended heavy special effects and rock and roll. So, like, he was right at home here. Nice. Yeah,
1: I could see that.
2: Yeah, uh, but that I, I have to be honest with you, I wasn't that familiar with it. I, I did see some clips of it online. It looked pretty cool.
1: I must going to say, like, special effects in the 1990s on the Vegas Strip sounds exactly like where my heaven is going to be when I do eventually <laughs> die.
2: Yeah. Uh, now, we, we, we mentioned this during one of our music breaks. Cassidy had a daughter. Named Katie Cassidy from an extramarital affair in 1986. Oh, oh, okay. Um, from what I read, he said that he was really not a very big part of her life. Yeah, actually. Well,
1: I will say that Katie Cassidy, I'm actually a massive fan of Katie Cassidy because if you guys have listened to this show for any amount mm-hmm. of time, you will know that my number one television show. Mm-hmm. The thing that I hold the highest. Mm-hmm. 15 years of just the greatest content of television that you can ever create. That was Benson. <laughs> Incorrect, but you are so darn close. <laughs> uh, 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 it's the TV show Supernatural. And she played the original Ruby and Lilith on that show. She was also in uh, the reboot of The Nightmare on Elm Street. She's I, I, um, a hero. I
2: preferred... I preferred the Torkelsons. Wow.
1: Holy cow, you're the first person that has said the name of that show. (laughs) Don't say it two more times or the entire cast will show up to your house.
2: Oh, God. They'll probably want me to make them a sandwich. I don't think they've worked much.
1: Do you have enough bread? Uh, But anyway, yeah, Katie Cassidy is... She's, you know, part of the DCEU, but she's also part of the Supernatural fandom and yeah i mean she's she's got a, really
2: a, big, she, a big deal yeah she, definitely yeah. uh but um it sounded like she was basically raised by her mom and her stepdad and mm-hmm. david say was very proud of her uh he was amazed at, at the things she had accomplished but it, it didn't sound like he was like super involved in her life necessarily Um, His second marriage ended, but he remarried in 1991 to to Sue Schifrin. They had a son named Bo in 1991, but the two divorced in 2014. Um, Cassidy in 2008 publicly announced that he had a drinking problem and that he was uh, going to therapy to deal with that. It was the second time that he had attempted to dry out publicly in his life.
3: You said this is 2008?
2: This is uh, in 2008, he announced that he, he had a drinking problem and that he was going to seek help for his issues. He was cited for DUI in November of 2010. He was cited for a DUI in August of 2013. He was cited with a DUI in January of 2014. And then he was charged with leaving the scene of an accident, driving with a suspended license and other offenses in Florida in September of 2015. Oh, wow. On February 25th, 2017, Cassidy was performing a show and he had trouble remembering song lyrics that he had essentially been performing for about 50 years and he actually fell off the stage during a performance. Oh, yikes. He announced shortly thereafter that he was living with dementia, which his mother and grandfather had suffered from and that he was going to retire from public work. Later, he fell ill at a recording studio and was hospitalized. In one of his last interviews, he told A&E that he had liver disease. He acknowledged that he had, quote, no sign of dementia at this stage of my life. It was complete alcohol poisoning. And the fact is, I lied about my drinking. You know, I did it to myself, man. I did it to myself to cover up the sadness and the emptiness.
3: That's just tragic.
2: Yeah, it really is. Because, I mean, at this point, the guy's lived, he's had very few people, and you could probably talk about this better than I can, LD, the career rebirths. I mean, if he just had the Partridge family, we would remember him. And very few people have that, and then have, you know, chart success in, in, what, 20-something years later and have a, a revival on Broadway. Oh, and then they, they have a whole other second act uh, in terms of being on the stage in, in Las Vegas. That, I mean, there aren't many people who have that as much, as many creative, successful, creative lives as this dude did.
1: I mean, I, I joked about it earlier, but I'm saying Donny Osmond is kind of the same yeah. thing. Right. You know, he followed kind of the same path, although you know it might come out later but i don't think donny osmond and forgive me if i i totally missed something has had less of a you know tragic path as david cassidy did yeah because i think he had you know the support of his family and that was like a big part of it and probably a lot of handlers that kept him out of trouble where it's yeah like cassidy was more of a you know the machine produced him kind of kind
2: of chewed him up yeah but for when when he says that i did it to myself to cover up the sadness and the emptiness
1: yeah that's it's that's
2: gut i mean because he's he's not far removed from his third divorce at this time you know and that's whatever whatever else he's dealing with and then the other thing you have to think about is if what he said in in his book is correct i mean he comes from a father who was an alcoholic and who was bipolar and you know those kind of things can be hereditary. Now, I'm not, I don't, obviously he had a, he had a problem. He had a tremendous amount of trouble handling his drinking. He, he publicly said so on multiple occasions. He had, uh, he went through a spate of, of DUIs and, and embarrassing situations like that. But I mean, that stuff is hereditary. So I, mean, I don't, I don't know that he was dealing with anything beyond just alcoholism. That can be plenty, as we learned with the episodes on John Bonham and Doug Hopkins and people like that. Unfortunately, on November 18th, 2017, Cassidy was hospitalized with liver and kidney failure. He was held in a medically induced coma for a while. Doctors had hoped to keep him stable long enough for a transplant liver to be located and and to perform a, a liver transplant. However, he died of liver failure on November 21st, 2017, 47 years to the day since I think I love you hit number one on the charts oh wow that is that there's there's a there's there's a, a lot going on with with that date and with those two things matching up and all that kind of stuff and this could be a really sad ending if we let it be that because this is a person who obviously had some demons and some problems that that chased him for a long time because you know he talked about quote numbing himself with alcohol when he was deeply dead in the early 1980s and then you know, he publicly announced not long after that that he was going to go into rehab and he was going to get himself well and he did and he backslid and the, the problem kept coming up and he, he dealt with a lot of things, uh, obviously, and the, the, the love that he never felt that he got from his father, the respect that he never got from his dad for the accomplishments that, that you know, the milestones that he was reaching and stuff. So, I mean, we, we could we could wallow in, in some pretty sad stuff, but um, I actually want to end things on a little bit of an upbeat note, if we can do that. Please. I wanted the ending of this to not be quite so sad. So let's circle back just a tiny bit. I was happy to read that David Cassidy more than made peace with his past as Keith Partridge. He said, quote, I was just a passenger on the bus. It's nice to be driving that bus, he said in 1998. He also pointed out that he got to do and experience something that a literal handful of human beings ever have in the history of this planet. He said, "How many people got to to experience what I did and live what I did?" And he started naming them off: who like Sinatra, mm-hmm. Elvis, the Beatles, maybe? He's like that. that that's about it. There aren't many that that the have that kind of mania to have the fame and the craziness and and but but. You know, he says in in retrospect, you you know, a a lot of it was tough and it was, I kind of lost my own identity. But, you know, as I look back on it, I I did something almost nobody else got to do. A, a, A literal handful of other human beings in the history of civilization have ever gotten to do this. And he appreciated it. And he had come to grips and to terms with it. So you know he wasn't fighting with Keith Partridge anymore. He was kind of owning the history of uh, what he'd done and, and appreciating it in retrospect, which I think is really cool. He participated in some reunion shows that they did and he would often do question and answer sessions with fans at the end of concerts in the 90s and into the 2000s. And he would almost always invariably answer questions about the Partridge family. And he was happy to do that. He didn't have any resentment and he'd let all that stuff go.
1: I love that. I love, I love
2: that. Yeah. Cassidy released an album called Old Trick, New Dog in 1998. (laughs) It included a reworked version of I Think I Love You. And I'm going to let LD wrap things up in terms of giving out the socials. And then uh, we'll we'll roll into one final song from Mr. Cassidy.
1: Yeah. So here's our social stuff. If you think we're doing a good job and you would like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven we're actually going to be retooling that in the new year so you guys get some awesome stuff if you do become a patreon
2: tool Uh,
1: yeah our twitter is rock and roll lt our instagram is rock and roll heaven lt you can find us on facebook at rock and roll heaven pod still not saying our website and you can email us at rock and roll heaven lt at gmail.com please make sure to check out all the other pantheon podcast pantheon is the awesome network that we're with and they have some incredible shows that you guys should absolutely check out and you can find that at www.pantheonpodcast.com now i'm going to turn it back over to tj i will say thank you guys so much for checking out this episode please make sure to check us out next week where we are going to be covering the lives of the lives of the life of eddie cochran
2: the many lives of eddie cochran (laughs) And hey, uh, we, we want to say shout out and thank you to listener Elizabeth for uh, recommending this episode. Yes, I uh, hope you enjoyed it. I, I It was, uh, again, went in flying completely blind, knew very little about David Cassidy, and I, I was fascinated by some of what I found. So I, I hope you enjoyed this as much as uh, we enjoyed presenting.
3: Thank you, Elizabeth, for the suggestion. Again, like TJ, I went into this knowing virtually nothing, and i I feel like this has been a real journey here, and just seeing that story is is really incredible. So thank you for the suggestion. Thank you for everyone listening, and we can't wait to see you on the next one.
2: Absolutely. And so what we're going to finish with is, to me, something that kind of demonstrated that Cassidy was completely cool with Keith Partridge and that he had come completely to terms and was at peace with his past. He did this album in 1998 called Old Trick, New Dog. And on it, he did a remake of the very first hit by the Partridge family. This is a very different sounding and very updated version of I Think I Love You. And we're going to sign off from Rock and Roll 11.
1: Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, buddy. I think I love
2: you.
4: Sleeping and right in the middle of a good dream, like all at once I wake up from something that keeps knocking at my brain. Before I go insane, I hold my pillow to my head and spring up in my bed, screaming out the words I dread. I think I love you. This feeling I didn't know how to deal with And so I just decided to myself I'd hide it to myself